Hello and welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that has both the gorilla and the lion. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. Where am I? Do I? How do we do this? <laughs> I'm Mike Bloom, and after all this, I'm about ready to chuck this season into a volcano. Hmm. I'm Paul Ossilson, and uh, my whole <laughs> this has got my whole body feeling happy like a kid at a carnival. And welcome back to our continuing coverage of uh, Survivor Redemption Island, one of the most beloved seasons of, wait, what's that? Oh, yeah, one of the most hated seasons of all time as we delve through the most boring part of one of the most hated seasons of all time. And I'm before serious, we get into though. Wasn't, wasn't historians dead? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've, I get a lot of emails these days for our listeners. People ask, are we dead? And apparently the answer is no, because here we are showing up again with a new episode after what, a year and a half? Listen, it was God's will for us to keep going. And much like Matt, we made our way back from the dead. And we'll see if we immediately go back to death right after this. <laughs> I don't know. Wait. Some of those episodes we watched for this uh, this chunk here did feel like death. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. Uh, just to cover this for our listeners, we're going to go through episodes five through nine of Redemption Island. Keep in mind, when we did episodes one through four, it was a long time ago. We have no idea what we talked about. We have no idea if there was any good running jokes or inside jokes or gags. So <laughs> do not expect us to to carry those over into this episode. We're going through the middle stretch of the season, which I will flat out admit to you guys, as boring as some of these episodes are, I actually found a couple really interesting things to talk about in this stretch. Did you find that, or is that just me? Well, we're going to touch upon, in my opinion, probably the only other not interesting, but like I would say pretty compelling episode of the season, which is the merge episode where Matt gets voted out again. I would argue, I know you said it's the most boring stretch. I will still say that it's yet to come. Uh, you know, there's a chance we're only going to dote upon the beginning of the paganging of the Zapateras. What I will say from like my perspective of watching this particular batch of episodes back is I don't know if I felt a different way back when this aired in 2011, but like this is one of the only seasons for me where. I kind of dislike at least a little something about each and every person in this season. And it really depends on like the circumstances. It's so odd for me where like during this latter half of the pre-merge, I'll admit like I'm not necessarily a Philip Shepard apologist, but like there were certain things in these Omotepe scenes where I'm like, I could kind of understand where Philip is coming from. Maybe he's not given a chance. You know, maybe there is a bit of pettiness involved. And then, like, it hits the merge, and he is a braggadocious a-hole for most of it. And you're like, okay, well, then never mind. You're back on my shit list. And so that's kind of been my impression this entire time is, and I guess that's more realistic, I suppose, to how we're supposed to view people out there on the island. But, yeah, it's rough. It's real rough, I with mean, the exception of that merge episode. Right. Well, and I think, like, maybe this is some of the stuff Mara was alluding to. There is, like, some good stuff in there. Like, some overall, some of the themes of the season and the overall story arc are actually really interesting and fascinating. Like, the whole, you know, all, how we have to, how long we take to get to, to Matt Elrod's whole um, um, episode here. But there's, like, nothing else. I, I feel like there's nothing else to support it. Like, we have, like, the couple main storylines we're following and then the fluff that normally that's like the really fun part of Survivor 2 is all the, you know, Mario, you write about all the funny stuff. I feel like there's so much of it that there's just like nothing there to support the main story we're following here. So we have to go through all these episodes where nothing really happens. There's nothing really else interesting going on. There's people that we do not care about and like Mike said, actively dislike. So uh, that actually might be a great recipe for a historian's podcast. <laughs> it, it might be, but I, I think you're touching on a larger 
uh, theme in a lot of ways. And it's not just old man yells at cloud kind of thing, right? But we have talked on this podcast a million times about archetypes of characters in the show and 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 things like that. And and there's a lot of structure in the sense that they they find people who are going to come up short, you know, like a Rob Sesternino and 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 stuff like that. And then they have sympathetic winners, unsympathetic winners, deserving winners, or or you know, colorful person here, or or really funny person here, or this is a weird dynamic here. And they have all these sort of different things. But I'm reminded of, it, I think it was a a Family Guy episode of one time where like. I think Peter Griffin makes a joke and he's digging on the old sitcom Scrubs where he was basically like, I sat down and watched Scrubs. And then I was like, who's the funny guy? <laughs> and I feel like that's with Survivor, not in the sense of who's the funny guy, but but with this season, sort of like what Mike was saying, there's not anyone, you know, people don't need to be likable. We watch television shows where everybody is wholly unlikable. I would argue that Seinfeld's a little that way. It's always sunny in Philadelphia is definitely that way. Like mm-hmm. you aren't you aren't supposed to root for the for for the gang on on it's always sunny in Philadelphia. You you're supposed to, you know, you you enjoy them and they they make you laugh, but you're not rooting for them, right? When their when their weird schemes fail, you're like, haha, your scheme failed. But with Survivor, usually with the arc of a season, you like want to root for somebody. You want all these sorts of things. And with Survivor Redemption Island, it's kind of like, who am I? Who, who am I rooting for? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah, this definitely ties into something I write about a lot. And I, I'm actually currently writing, I don't want to date this podcast too much, but I'm writing a funny 115 entry on South Pacific, which is obviously the season after this. And I am a big fan of South Pacific to the point that I've often said, I think it's my favorite season between 10 and 30. I just love that season so much. Now, Redemption Island, I don't think is anywhere near South Pacific. It has a lot of the same flaws, but I also don't think it's one of the worst seasons ever. And I will always be a little bit of a defender of of, uh, Redemption Island here. And the reason why it's kind of ties into what you guys were just saying earlier, that it might not be the most interesting story. It might not really have the most rootable protagonist. It really doesn't have like people you want to root for. You're cheering for them to do well. But it is a complete story. And this is one thing I bring up later as we get into much later season Survivor, like after season 31, 31 through 40, whatever. Those never feel like complete stories to me. They feel like highlights, like individual episodes that don't really fit into any bigger picture. It, everything resets after one episode. What I like about Redemption Island is it does feel like a complete story. And again, yeah. you might not like the story, but it is does have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and everything logically goes to where it should. So yep. that's my argument why I actually really kind of do like the season, even though I didn't at the time. I just saw seasons later that I don't think do this as well as Redemption Island does. Well, I would agree with that in a way, like even after I said, in the sense that the story of Redemption Island, and we're getting all way ahead of ourselves. There's lots of different little stories in Redemption Island. But no, the let's overarching cut to the one, end. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off, please. <laughs> I mean, the, the overarching story of Redemption Island is Rob. And, you know, Rob's victory and, you know, how he almost completely, you know, strong-armed this game. And, and you know, oh, he had everyone on a trance and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm going to talk about Rob's victory and, like, things people said at the reunion and other things uh, with that, and I'm not going to, you know, spoil my argument or get into that because we'll we'll eventually in a couple of years, we'll end this season on our podcast. And so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there is so much like actual survivor gameplay stuff that people who are going to go out on the island 
can really learn from watching the season. There's so much completeness and things in there. And it is the story of Rob. And the problem is, is that we just didn't like watching that story. I think, well, yeah, they, we I mean, meaning it, some of us, some people really right. loved it. Some people were super into, into Rob and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of people were like, this season's boring because it's a begonging and Rob's got everyone under control and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, that's the story. Mm hmm. It's an interesting psychological study, especially as we get to, like, the first part of the post-merge, right? There's a reason why the world cult is enacted so many times. And to your point, Mario, we're going to see it to a different degree, I would say, in Season 23 as well. But, like, it's ugly behavior, but always interesting to see on reality TV. But interesting is not necessarily the same as enjoyable. And while I do agree that there's a story... It's because the narrative is as simplistic as go, dog, go, right? Yeah. It's like yep. us versus them, we good, they bad, and then yep. just clearing out the enemy. So I do think that the gameplay helps afford a bit of the favors for the storytelling this season. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you just with the asterisk being, yes, that is the simplistic storyline of this season. Just <laughs> go, dog, go. But I would argue I have seen many seasons since where the, the story is the complete opposite of that, where it's so goddamn complicated that there's no central narrative at all. So I find it kind of refreshing to watch the season, to be honest. A, a palate cleanser in a way, you know? Yeah, so, the palate cleanser. So in between, when, when you, in between Tolstoy books, you just like pull out like a Dr. Seuss and go, ah, words. Yes, Jay, that's exactly what I do. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting that you mentioned the word cult because, again, we're jumping a little ahead of ourselves, but everyone always talks about South Pacific and calls that season the cult season and what a cult coach ran. I'm not sure this season is any less of a cult. People just don't mention it that way. I, I think that's kind of interesting. Well, this is almost seems less of a cult than like a prison, which I do understand is a little culty in and of itself. You know, we've all mm -hmm. seen going clear to a certain perspective, but like it feels like the way Rob exercises things versus again, coach. And even though I think I will say when we get to South Pacific, I think South Pacific is able to improve upon the Redemption Island formula in a number of ways. One of them is storytelling, being able to show like the people that are alongside coach in, in charge as opposed to, again, Boston Rob sort of uniformly ruling over everything. But it does seem like Rob has more of a, a very hard earned approach, right? Of like, do not talk to them. Do not do this. Do not do that. Whereas coach has the softer hand, if you will, as much as you might feel like it is hardened by the iron he's constantly sharpening. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. That was good. <laughs> Mardo, you promised us a, a good email to kick off this podcast. Do you guys want a nice, awkward email to start off the podcast? I Absolutely. Love okay. I got an email from one of my listeners. And, you know, I think about these Survivor seasons and Survivor history and the way Survivor is produced all the time. And I... It's very rare for someone to throw a question at me that I have never considered before. And I love this one because this is, it's very awkward. I'm warning you, but it's really interesting if you think about it. Okay. I, I, the guy who sent me this does not want me to share his name, but he did point out a good point. He said, Hey Mario, can I ask you guys on historians, your opinion on something I noticed regarding Redemption Island, specifically the casting of this season. And he said, I want to preface this by saying I have no inside information whatsoever to back this up. And if you tell me I'm seeing something that isn't there, I will completely defer to you guys. And this is where he makes the point. Did you ever notice how from seasons 10 through 19, they always cast at least one gay male contestant? Then all of a sudden, from 20 to 22, there's none. 
Remember what happened in Marquesas when Boston Rob, you know, made some untoward comments about uh, gay people. Do you think the show avoided casting a gay male for 20 and 22 just to prevent Rob from saying something stupid on camera again? And he said, again, I have no inside information or anything that backs that up. It's just something I noticed from the casting that I thought was weird. Why the sudden change? And then all of a sudden in season 23, the season after Rob, they return. They start casting gay males again. So he's just wondering, is, do you think there was something interesting going on there? They just did not want to cast gay guys on a season with Rob because of his past. And there's no way they could make sure this gay contestant would be able to be with Russell, who really, you know, oh, yeah. who is would, the, the... would never say anything hateful about anyone. Yeah, so. I, I was going to say, Russell, probably not any more progressive <laughs> in his thoughts. Right. I, I never I didn't notice that trend. Sometimes I like to kind of you know watch how demographics have changed of who they put on the show. But I hadn't considered that one before. Yeah. And he, he pointed out that in Heroes versus Villains. It makes more sense because the two, you know, the prominent gay male players that would have returned, Richard Hatch and Todd, had other circumstances that prevented them from not being on the cast. So heroes versus villains makes more sense. Yet it's very interesting that Redemption Island, all of a sudden, the one season with no gay men in the cast, it's the Rob season. Just he just wanted to throw that out there and he wanted to know if he was if there was anything behind that, we thought. I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily part of like Boston Rob's list of writers, right? Like no yeah. green M&Ms, all the crispy rice, <laughs> no gay people, please. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily okay. Well, we have to make sure it's not in it. I think it is an interesting tenet because again, to your, the point that you made, like LGBTQ plus members have been part of the cast since literally the first season. And it's odd for them to sort of take a break from that uh, in favor of, I think, still embracing other aspects of diversity. Yeah, I mean, I would ch personally chalk it up to more so like coincidence than fate, but definitely something I haven't considered. Appreciate the question. It's it's a really nice thing to clock, but I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm not going to speak for Rob and Rob's, you know, how what Rob thinks of the world, people, human beings, and in and, and any sort of thing like that. I, I don't know this, that, or the other thing. But at the end of the day, if Rob is, you know, Rob, how, how many confessionals is Rob doing out there on the island? You know, in a game of Survivor, how many confessionals do you do? <laughs> in Redemption Island, I don't know if I can count that high to see how many right. confessionals he got. So Rob is literally spending hours a day in front of the camera talking, right? And we only have 13, 14 episodes of 42 minutes in length uh, and everything like that. Like if Rob makes some sort of inappropriate or disparaging comment toward some people group, something along those lines, you don't have to necessarily like, you know, harp on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Rob makes some comments in survivor Marquesas, which, you know, don't age well and they're not very good. But at the same time, what year was that? That was what, 2002 or one? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was something where unfortunately in our society, comments like that were more common than maybe, you know, we would like to necessarily admit. Right. And I don't know if it necessarily reflects some sort of like hard edge prejudice within Boston Rob, but maybe it does. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know, but I feel like Mike's more right in the sense that it's probably more coincidental than, than mm -hmm. on purpose. 
Yeah, because of course we don't know who was in casting until the last minute if people had to drop out. So yeah, it's I suspect it's just a coincidence, but it is kind of amusing. It's right here during this era when Russell all of a sudden becomes the voice of the show and then Rob comes back and they want Rob to be the big fan favorite superhero. It is an interesting little coincidence that all of a sudden one aspect of the cast was kind of removed very quietly for a couple seasons. Well, then maybe I guess I would add too. I think I probably would land on the... Um the the side of coincidence but it'd be kind of interesting to think okay they clearly prioritized casting certain individuals who are going to be very likely to work with a returning player like robin russell that Mm -hmm. took higher priority than let's make sure we're representative here of all different types of people so um, i think i think that's 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 the clock right there i mean yeah that's 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 the thing right we we talk about omotepe the rob zombies if you will and like with the exception of philip and rob they pretty much look like a college brochure uh when going into this (laughs) post-merge situation and i don't think it's coincidental again that they are all particularly stacked on one side of the tribe even though the other tribe had you know krista and stephanie i feel like the demographics of one tribe were very different than the other ones and i know that again rob and russell technically picked for their tribes but I do not think it's any sort of mistake that like those types of personalities were separated between two different tribes where whether it was Rob or Russell drawing that Omatepe buff, I'd like to believe they were probably having people that are going to be more amenable to work with them than on Zapatera. I did we talk about that in part one, the uh rumors or allegations it was, a, that... it was a different decade i i can't remember <laughs> i know this was pre-covid i know we talked about this i don't remember but yeah this this is one of the things that has always followed this season and again i don't know anything any more than anybody else does but that's always been the uh the hint and the allegations that yeah one of those tribes was way more likely to work with rob and one was way more likely to be antagonistic towards russell and it's kind of interesting the way it worked out and again i don't know anything about this i've I've talked to people over the years that have had suspicions, but I, none of us knows this. These are just uh, rumors. But but could you also argue in a way, though, that if if it were switched, like we only know, like obviously we meet these people uh, from the time on TV. And we, you know, those those people who are listening to this podcast are probably uh, people who absorb more survivor, uh, you know, literature for best of the for for lack of a better word, like they are, they are absorbing more media dealing with Survivor. They're listening to exit interviews. They're probably listening to Rob Sesternino's podcast and all of the uh, wonderful interviews that's happening there with people. So like, you know, it, it's, you, you sort of get to know the contestants, even though you don't really know them in real life and all that sort of thing. But with that being said, could you miss necessarily make the argument that if it were reversed and Rob went to Zapatera and Russell went to Omatepe, would you could make an argument that the Zapatera rallies around Rob and Omatepe mm-hmm. is just an absolute mess because I think it's I think this was a slam dunk for the producers either way. They get people who think for themselves. They get some people that, you know, young girls or whatever that that Russell likes to, you know, prey on for his alliance oh, in God. both sides <laughs> for lack of a better word. Right. Like, mm-hmm. he, you know, I'm going to get this dumbass girl alliance or whatever Russell said and all those sorts of things and and that that's awful so like you know there's options on either way so russell can try to do russell things but i think that i think that you're right i think they cast people on both sides who would necessarily rally around somebody a a veteran who would come in and say hey let's work together on things uh 
and one of those veterans coming back was going to come in the game and say, hey, let's work together on things. And one veteran was going to come back and say, no, this is my game. We're going to do whatever I want. I'm going to go look for idols now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the one thing that really jumped out at me in this last rewatch, these episodes five through nine, I don't know if I've ever seen a Survivor cast that's lower energy than this cast. And I was trying to pick it out because I know people don't like the season. There's plenty of reasons not to like it. That's fine. But there's one thing that really jumped out at me, and I think maybe subconsciously a lot of people, this probably factors in why they don't like the season. Damn, this cast is low energy, especially Zapatera. They are so dry and so kind of calm and quiet, and they're not like super aggressive players. They're like you said, they're not the type that are going to rise up against a returning player either way, no matter who is on their tribe, Rob or Russell. But I think that's one of those things that maybe subconsciously people don't like about the season is that the players are not especially aggressive. They're just low energy, calm, laid back. I mean, it's it's really obvious to me the more I look for it. Did you, have you guys noticed that as well, the lack of energy in this cast? I mean, uh, again, it's a little bit of a, the, the, the tail wagging the dog or chicken or the egg situation of like, obviously, Philip is, besides Rob, the biggest time suck that yeah. occurs on this season. And I would say he's very much the opposite. We'll obviously get into like the umpteen Philip confessionals we get and how stagey that is and the energy that he brings behind it. I would say that on Zapatero, you do have someone like David, who is like a little smarmy and has that snark. The difficulty comes, though, in the fact that arguably Zapatera might have more of that personality, but when it is very clear that none of them are winning this game, they get so freaking down in the dumps, right? Mm -hmm. They just given this attitude of like, what's the point? Why are we going to keep doing this? That then the people that we're left to invest in are, besides Philip, like, very copacetic. I would actually cop a lot of what you were talking about with Zapatera more so onto like the young women of Ometepe where like mm-hmm. they're smiling a lot, but really there's not a terrible amount, I would say, of enthusiasm going on there. Uh, and so I think it's tough when, again, the the way the game plays out is I would say the more varied tribe uh, that maybe had a, a bit more, I don't know, sort of like characterism going on into it ends up just getting kicked down in the dumps and just sits there while the people who are personified at least as being a bit more milk toast end up prevailing. Yeah, yeah and then, I mean, that, go ahead. I, I, I think there are comparisons either way. It's going back to my, if Rob had landed on Zapatera, because we have Philip who, I mean, Philip is a character and we're, we're, we, we've talked about Philip. We're going to talk more about Philip. Philip's just uh, prevalent everywhere, right? But Philip, with all of his characterness, what happens when Rob is there giving him orders and telling him advice. Philip's like, I'm a former federal agent and I, you know, serve this and I'm, I am going to follow you faithfully and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you have David Murphy on the other side who is, you know, as, as Mike said, you know, trying to, trying to, trying to game this game, you know, he's trying to play and be a player and and make moves and, you know, all of those Jeff Probst isms and all that sort of stuff. But it's like, you know, that if Rob is on his team, he's he's with him you know what i mean because he's like rob's gonna make some moves and i'm gonna make some moves with rob and maybe he tries to cut him later and all that sort of stuff and that's fine but i think that there's comparisons on either side to where no matter where rob landed and where russell landed rob was gonna probably be all right and russell was going to struggle Hmm. okay and this does lead into a question as we get into this stretch of episodes In part one of the podcast, I know it was pretty uh, accepted that we all went into this podcast expecting not to like Redemption Island. It's not a very popular season. And I remember vaguely, again, this was like two years ago, I think, 
that we all thought it was better than we remembered. It was actually kind of interesting because there was things to talk about. Through episodes five through nine, are you still enjoying this season? Um, I think for me, like the what happens at the merge um, g- gives it kind of a big jolt of what we need to kind of keep enjoying it. I, I would say it being kind of a slog, I uh, I probably liked it less in the beginning. I think it actually started stronger. And, and kind of what you were talking about, the, the low energy um, factor of things, I kind of felt like from a storytelling um, perspective, that because we spent so long, really the only narrative we were getting from Zapatera the whole time was like, got it. Like, it was all about Russell. It was all about Russell. It was all about Russell. Then once he's gone, it's all about remains of Russell. Got to get out the remains of Russell. That we never really took the time to really to get to know who these weirdos at Zapatera are. And I mean, maybe they're so weird we don't want to know who it is. But I'm I'm enjoying it a little bit, and I think there was more potential there had we not focused so much on. Um, just the downfall of Russell. Um, so I'm enjoying it a little bit, I guess. And I think hopefully by the end of the season, I will, um, hold it up a little bit higher just because like Mara, you said, like the, the big storyline that pays off in the end, it, it obviously does have a nice, you know, beginning, middle and end, um, with the story of Rob. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think I showed my hand a bit earlier when I when I mentioned the whole, like, uh, everyone's at least a little unlikable stuff, where episodes five through seven had some interesting things in it. I will say, like, to Paul's point, I actually liked some of the dynamics that were being exposed on Zapatera, particularly towards the end of it, right? When Stephanie's like, it's this pair and this pair and this pair. I'm like, oh, okay, that's actually kind of interesting. I would have liked to see that a bit more. Uh, and so I do think that there was like maybe something there, there that I think again, gets handicapped a bit by focusing on returning players, by focusing on Philip and not focusing as much on the relationships because surprise, surprise, we're not going to really need to get to know these people because none of them end up really making the final six. Episode eight serves as a, a nice energy boost because episode nine sucks in my opinion. <laughs> like it's just bad. The challenge, I mean, talk about low energy, like the challenges really start seeming pretty lazy at this point. It doesn't help that like the Nicaragua coast, we talked about this in the Nicaragua season, right? It's just muddy and brown and gray. Like there's nothing even interesting to look at. So I will still stick by my statement that episodes one through four are far and away the like apex of this season. And it really started to downslide in five through seven, hit a brief plateau in eight, and is now starting to downslide even more so in nine. Let me ask you this question. Does it seem to you when you're watching this episode that anyone is having any fun? No. Nobody. The only person who's even silent in the season is Rob and once in a while Philip. And that's really about it. Because, you know, I get that Survivor isn't fun in a lot of ways. Like, you're you're out there starving and cold, and it, it doesn't seem necessarily that fun. But, I mean, people are out there. They're making the best of it. They're, they're, they're creating fun social situations. I mean, look at, you know, the, 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 the wake-up radio uh, thing on, uh, for Mara Amu and, and, you know, the games that people are, are learning to play. And, and I'm sure they're doing some of that. But, God, every time we see both Ometepe and Zapatera on TV in these episodes, no one is having any fun and they look like they're not having fun. They're looking like everything is miserable and they hate it and they don't necessarily want to be there. And that, I mean, that's cool. I get it in some ways, but 
like anything, if if there is if you have no joy doing something, it will look joyless. And that's, you know, especially, you know, when you're acting and things like that, like, you know, you don't you know, even if you're playing a character who's supposed to be sad or angry or crestfallen, like if you love what you do, that love is going to radiate out through the emotions that you have. And if you are are checked out and you don't want to be there, that's going to be very apparent. And it's just tough to watch these episodes because I'm just like, there is no fun being had. Even if there is, there isn't a lot, and they're not showing it. Yeah, and I would definitely file that away with compare and contrast this with South Pacific, our next season, where it looks like everybody's having a blast at all times. It's really, it's like night and day, these two seasons. And I'm very interested when we get to that season to talk about why things might work a little more in that season, even though they don't in this one, even though they're ostensibly the exact same plot. <laughs> I, I love South Pacific too, Mario. So I can't wait to get to that in, um, you know, about seven years. <laughs> okay. So with that, let's go through this, this stretch of episodes, which admittedly we're not super excited to get into, but again, we're the historians. Do, do we, we will try do to, we, make... do we have to? Yeah, I know. Sorry, Jay. We could just, <laughs> if you want to fast forward to the end or put us on like eight speed and make our voices sound even more chipmunky than usual. But again, we are the historians. We will try to make it interesting. I have, for some reason, 23 pages of notes for these five episodes, which I have no idea how I did that. But admittedly, most of that will not be things that actually happen in the episode. It's just a plot or plot points or topics I want to bring up. So just well, saying this thing happened and then this other thing happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's start with episode five and let's start with the title of episode five. Is it? <laughs> we hate our tribe. Is the title? There you go. Five. Now, I thought when we were preparing the notes for this, I saw. Uh, for you guys who don't know, we have a little email thread on Facebook where we talk about these episodes as we're planning them. You guys came up with an alternative title for this episode. I saw the other day. Would you like to share that? Oh yeah, I think it's. Uh, you had mentioned Paul something about Krista, who unceremoniously gets voted out, but again because of stupid Redemption Island doesn't leave the game in this episode. And I just completely reflexively said Krista Munch's butt, which I don't know. And if then I, I agreed. She's a she's a muncher. She's a muncher. She's not a smasher. She's a muncher. We'll, we'll talk about it. Like she really again, all, people, these all these people get under my skin in at least some point over these five episodes. And we'll get into how Krista probably worms her way closest uh, over the course of this thing. And that's so good. I want folks to point out, like, I don't know how, I mean, God, I don't know how many years ago it was, but just so you know, we have named the chat that we talk to each other in as the smashers. Like, that's how good that joke was and, and how much we love. Well, it's not a smasher. It's like, then we're like, oh, muncher. And it's like, I'm, I'm expecting our chat to change names, you know, like, it's so good. <laughs> Yeah, so however you title this episode, it's either the official title, We Hate Our, tri Our Tribe, or the historian's title, Krista Munch's Butt. Those are the two <laughs> Again, just the pure hatred that you guys had for Krista as I was listening to the, the reading your notes. Okay, so let's go into episode five. At this point in the season, I will try to put you back in a picture here. Uh, I don't know if people don't remember this. Zapatera was winning this game. Russell's Tribe was beating Boston Rob's tribe. I know it's kind of been lost to history at this point, but they were winning. Then they threw the challenge. They got rid of Russell. Ever since then, it's been a slow chipping away as Ometepe will be chipping their way back into this game. And Jeff Probst and the previously on segments will never hesitate to forget us that they threw a challenge and it was a stupid idea. 
Right. And I, I just want to do here. I, I think too, actually, I think this was a, it was a logical place for us to kind of start and pick back up. I think dropping us at this point is probably what made this stretch of episodes weaker because I think that some of the fun of the pre-merge is the switch from the, from the winning streaks. And I think we don't really get that because we, we, we jump right in and this is going to be, you know, we're in the losing streak. So um, I think that might be important to note as well. And I'll I'll also say, I believe I brought this up last time, 50 years ago, but like, again, and they're going to keep putting this out here. Julie's going to say like, oh, I think we set set a curse on ourselves. Like, if you look at the challenges that Zapatera ends up losing by... I'm going to put this firmly on the shoulders of the Greek silent god Grant Matos because this <laughs> dude stealthily, stealth like crushes a lot of these challenges on behalf of Ometepe. And even if the bandy-legged troll was on this tribe, that's not going to help them for shit. I know that we're going to have this narrative of like, oh, Sarita freaked out when they were untying bags, but... I don't know. Like, I, I'd like to believe it if I see it. If I go into the Sliding Doors universe where Russell ends up staying on Zapatera, I can't really imagine a situation where they are guaranteed to win these challenges over Ometepe. Yeah, and this is one of the points, the points that I definitely wanted to make in this episode. Yeah, everybody remembers Boston Rob being a one-man show. Boston Rob is amazing. Jeff Probst will openly fillet him in every previously on segment. But Grant is the reason they're so good at challenges. And Grant single-handedly wins at least two or three challenges during this stretch. So let's not forget this was not a one-man show. Grant is a very strong player in this season. Yeah, he's very, he has like a kind of more, even more boring Burton-y vibes to me, right? Of just <laughs> like the very mild-mannered guy who is really, really physical, very good at challenges. And then also gets like, you know, brutally betrayed close to the end of the game. Also, he went to my wife's high school. Very important trivia fact. And I asked, hey, do you have, have you ever heard anything about Grant? She goes, no, I've never heard anything about him. So I get that kind of fits his character. Also, his like reddish orangish toms is like like ultimate shoe game for Survivor. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> okay, so let's get to episode five. So Zapatera is about to start their long losing streak. And basically, if I recall, there's only two storylines really going through the next couple of episodes. There's Onomatepe. It's everyone trying to deal with Philip and his pink undies and him just driving everyone crazy. And over on Zapatera, it's just uh, Stephanie and Krista continuing to munch butt because they, they're so annoying that they were teamed <laughs> up with Russell and Russell got voted out and now they're mad. So the next two episodes are just them being mad about everything and the older people in the tribe hating them and them hating the older people. So admittedly, this is not an especially exciting episode to watch. I, I, I'm looking at my notes here. I'm like trying to try and jump in here and help you out here, Mario. No, stra- nothing adds Zapatera. Thought. So dull. Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> well, sh- sure. But- let's, let's start. Let's talk about the Phillips stuff, though, for a second. Because, like, this uh, first part of the episode, right, is the infamous stuff with Ash- Ashley and Natalie, right, sitting, like, inches away from Philip and actually putting their hands up in front of his face. And, again, I'll go back to a point that I made before that, like, I do think that, look, Philip certainly provides some aggravation from certain perspectives. Uh, but I, I do think that, like, the way he's kind of being treated there is a little rude. I think if anyone held up their hands in front of their face in front of me for a long time that wasn't my three-year-old child, I think I'd feel a certain way about it. Yeah, I'm definitely kind of sympathetic to Philip through the season. Now, <laughs> admittedly, I know we brought this up in the first part. 
I still, to this day, see a Philip wins Redemption Island edit in this season, and I know you guys disagree with me. But I do, I have some sympathy, because a lot of the time, I think the points he's making are correct. He just doesn't make them very well. Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? Is that I do think he is speaking the truth, but is, as always the case in both reality TV and life, right? It's like execution versus intention that mm-hmm. Philip has uh, an accurate read, I think, on everything that is happening. But the way that he ends up going about things and in particular bristling with people ends up just really almost like compromising any sort of goodwill he might have brought to the tribe. But I mean, you know, we're talking about this batch of episodes. Interestingly, is going to start here, right? Where it's like very, very prominent that Philip is on the outset here. And then this whole batch of episodes, right, is going to end with Philip patting these people on the legs saying he's their new family. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think we brought up this point probably in part one. You may love Philip. You probably hate Philip even more. There's probably no middle ground with Philip. But I cannot imagine how dull this season would be without Philip there. Thank God because for Philip. Exactly. That's exactly what you said. There's almost nothing happening other than Philip. I don't care how much munching is going on, okay? You cannot. There's not enough munching in the world to compete with what we have here with Philip. So, yes, thank God for Philip in the season. <laughs> you, you you bring up the, 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 the great fascinating point of the fact that, like, Philip can read people really well, and he has a good finger on, like, what's going on in the pulse of this game. But I always have this feeling that like he shows up to tribal council, kind of like Charlie from it's always sunny in Philadelphia just like pops up and goes wild card bitches. (laughs) Yeah. It's so odd because like, obviously I think, and he's claimed in interviews after the fact, and I imagine a bit of his hindsight being 2020, but he's like, yeah, I was playing this up. He'll talk about this again in episode nine of like, I know I'm, I know I'm perceived as a goat. I know they want to take me to the end. So I can imagine him playing it up as a performance, but like, at the same time, then it's almost too good to a certain perspective, right? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, Philip, you know, he's gonna as as he sort of advocates, like sometimes you just need to kind of fade into the background. Yeah. You don't necessarily <laughs> need to have input in every single conversation that happens in this show. He shouldn't be the poochie of Survivor Redemption yeah. Island. <laughs> I'm I'm going to I'm going to wholly commit to being this goat that everyone wants to bring the end. Wait, what do you mean no one's voting for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but again, to put this into historical context for people, if you didn't watch this season when it aired, if you weren't there on the message boards, Philip was the only person anybody ever talked about. Yeah. And this is, I mean, yep. this tracks very well. He is the star of the season. It's now re- remembered as the Boston Rob, you know, dominates Survivor season. But this, for all intents and purposes, was the Philip Shepard season, and that's how you really should look at as you look at it as you're watching. And uh, as Philip himself would say, if you have a problem with that, well, me and the United States Army have something to say to you, baby. It's like taking Rudy and like trying to one up him or three up him even by being like, I'm going to sick the entire army on you. Not just the mercenaries that Rudy was talking about in his all-stars final words. I'm going to send you a lot of friends. Exactly. (laughs) I know a lot of gorillas and a lot of lions. Okay, although that does tie into one other thing. This has been a long-standing rumor. I don't know if this has been proven true, but the next season after this, you know, Coach versus Ozzy, that makes no sense. Nobody cares about Coach versus Ozzy. I have heard at the time it was supposed to be Coach versus Philip, which makes a lot of sense if you realize what a big character Philip was here at the time. 
Yes. Can I just note here, we're supposed to be talking about episode five. We're trying everything in the book to start talking about South Pacific <laughs> and other things to not actually talk about the episode because there's nothing here because it does the same thing. It's like the same five lines repeated again and again and again and again and again. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have heard the rumors as well, Mario. I think the, the mythos states that it was supposed to be Philip versus Coach but when Philip, it's sort of like what happened with Shambo for Heroes versus Villains, where mm -hmm. Philip saw his edit and was not a fan of it. And he has, again, gone forward to say as such, including in recent interviews. And so he decided to pass on the season. And that's mm. how Ozzy ended up getting brought in. But yeah, I agree that, like, you know, Philip and Coach are not necessarily rivals, but I would say more so they're clones in a manner of speaking. <laughs> Can you, I, I can't even imagine how over the top that season would be, Philip versus Coach. Well, Philip, There's not... Philip would be immediately voted out, in my opinion. Like, there would be zero reason, no matter what tribe he's on, that any of these people would keep him past the first vote. Yeah, they'd be like, this guy's a muncher. We got to get rid of him. Okay, so episode five. We will, sorry, Paul, to get back to your point, we will come back to Redemption Island. We'll do our best to talk about this oh, season. Do we need to talk? Oh, Matt wins Redemption Island. Uh, yes, Matt, Matt wins. No, not the memory game this time. This time it's the cube puzzle. I will say, <laughs> if we're talking about Munch R Us here in Stephanie and, and Krista, like, so the title comes from, they go to the duel, right? And they're like, oh, we hate our tribe. Help us, Rob, please. We want to flip over to you. But like, there's, there's no swap this season. So what's the plan? Is the plan to tell Boston Rob, hey, throw your challenges to purposely put yourself down in numbers so then we'll join you at the merge cuz that doesn't necessarily work I mean anyone. Rob does not Rob doesn't know how to react to this he just does an awkward kind of thumbs up cuz he's like <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do thumbs up here you go girls like yeah it's not Boston Rob together just a random little hey thumbs up girls I was gonna say it's not quite as epic as fuck you Brad Culpepper is it it's not quite as dynamic a scene as you think okay. that would be well, here's here's my thing I want to say about this whole duel and everything that I thought was a little bit this is where I lo yes I think there's some some real problems in this cast but in the first couple episodes of the season Christina had made such mm -hmm. a big splash you know on the opening of the season they give her nothing in this she doesn't say anything at redemption island they don't get her take on anything she leaves without final words and there's like okay she was kind of a you know a, a big part of the opening of the show and she was the real you know threat to rob at the beginning of the game and i thought it was kind of a slap in the face to her that they they didn't give her anything there so i think a lot of the what they're showing really was a choice from from the producers and editors here, how they how they portray this, not just people not giving them stuff, because we know she could at least deliver some good stuff for us. It was interesting for me to watch this show for that reason, because I really remembered, and when we were when I was rewatching for these podcasts, I was really like into watching Christina. Like I don't know, I, I was I was fascinated with all of her airtime, right? And when I think of Christina leaving the show, I think of her game being voted out, and I don't think of the redemption loss, and this is why. Yeah, then that's another reason why, again, the structure, I feel like, I know, Mario, you talk about the cohesive story overall, but I will say I think the episodic structure of just a Redemption Island season kind of sucks. Because, again, I think there's that finality in snuffing the torch that gets taken away when you kind of have a womp-womp epilogue of, like, yeah, Christina was voted out, but she wasn't, then she had to hang out for an additional night on Redemption Island with Matt, and then just kind of 
left due to a cube puzzle. And there was that really sad moment where she's like, do I have to burn my buff? And for some reason, they say yes this season. And apparently, they never got a new one. Like, they'd have to buy one. They were actually never actually given new buffs. They made it the most high-stakes season ever and that you don't even get to keep your buff on the way out. <laughs> it's like this new rule tradition that they made up in the moment. Like, you have to do it. It's it's the rule. Uh-huh. It's This is the way it's always been. You have to burn it. Sorry. Yeah, it was very jarring. I noticed that when I was watching these episodes that I remember in part one, we built up Christina so hard as being this big major character. And we started this stretch of episodes again a year and a half later. And like she's gone in just like 30 seconds and that's it. I'm like, oh, I guess she's not that big a character. Although, okay, this does tie into something interesting. I want to get your thoughts on this. There was actually a thread on Reddit the other day where somebody posted and they said, have you ever noticed that seasons that contain Redemption Island it always makes the season better. Like you don't, the season as on a whole may not be that great, but the redemption Island part of it always makes the season more interesting than it would have been otherwise. And they said, have you ever noticed that? And that's one of those things I would actually agree with to kind of dispute what Mike said that, you know, redemption Island, the, the episode structure sucks. But I agree with that argument that redemption Island when it's in a season actually makes the season better. Like I would say this season would be so horrible without Redemption Island. At least Redemption Island kind of gives it a little oomph. I would say to a certain extent, uh, I would say that I think in this season, Redemption Island should have ended pre uh, at the merge as we'll sort mm -hmm. of get into right with the trolls and everything. And I will also say that I think I'll agree that Redemption Island in the pre-merge of Blood versus Water, they finally found the perfect formula for it. But I, I still just think for me, the entire concept still doesn't necessarily jive for me in terms of mm -hmm. like, I can understand how, in, but like even from a structural perspective, you have to dedicate time to a carnival game that takes like five to seven minutes. The reason why they perfected it in Blood versus Water was because they had the opportunity for all the tribe to go to be able to like, you know, get some interesting call outs going there. And then in South Pacific, you have people because they had seen Redemption Island before actually like doing fun things like Ozzy's Trojan horse strategy. Here, it's something completely new, and then understandably so, like, people are playing it much more simpler and arguably much more frightened than even mm -hmm. next season in South Pacific. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good argument. There's not really a right or a wrong answer. I was just curious your thoughts on this. What about Jay and Paul? Do you, do you guys, looking back at it, you know, 10 years later, do you like the concept of Redemption Island, what it brings to a season? Do you not? I know most people didn't like it at the time. Have, have your views changed on that? I mean, I think I, I don't I, I think you're both right in the sense of like there are some things like it feels like we're wasting time to go through the motions on some things to to sit through these kind of sometimes really boring challenges and those types of things. But I mean, for the season, I think it is like, you know, probably the most interesting thing that happens in the season from start to finish. I know we said Philip is our best character, but the story of Matt Elrod and how Rob plays into that is like really, really fascinating. Like, and it's through Redemption Island that makes it possible. And we're going to talk about that next season with South Pacific and how, you know, Ozzy kind of breaks the system, you know, totally just makes makes this the the structure of, of redemption island just part uh, uh, you know a piece in his own puzzle um so i i think it does add something to the show but i agree with mike a lot sometimes especially in these episodes where we're not getting a lot out of the episode it it adds another thing of little checkbox we have to have to get through it adds a duality in in the sense that a survivor episode is structured in a certain way. You have, you know, fallout from tribal council of some sort. 
And then you have your first challenge, which is usually a reward challenge. And then you have more tribal stuff. And then you have an immunity challenge. And then you have talk, 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 talk. And then you have tribal council, right? And it's like, you're always going to have on most survivor seasons. I know there's exceptions and all that sort of stuff, but in a, in a normal survivor season or episode, you have two challenges and stories that narrate around them because the challenges usually have slightly different stakes attached to them. Whereas in this season, we have two challenges per episode, but one challenge is the redemption Island duel. And then the second one is reward and also immunity for those that are still in the actual game of survivor. And so because of that, and because we don't have a lot of the nuancey stuff going on, like like you said in Blood versus Water, everyone going to the redemption duels, or Ozzy doing things over there because he's seen and understands this a little bit more. As as Mike pointed out, it's all kind of new, and they're playing it a little more frightened. There is a story of the Redemption Island uh, duel and stuff going on there, and then there is a story about the tribes and then the tribal challenges that's happening. And yeah, they do cross at certain points with Matt Elrod and Rob and and all that sort of stuff. But for the most part, those two stories are two completely different lines. And so it's like if you aren't entertained by one, then it's going to seem like a waste of time compared to the other. No, I think that's 100% well said. Yeah, that's very accurate. And one thing that you guys, I think you and Mike have both said that they're playing Redemption Island very scared, very timid. They're not really sure how to approach it, how to deal with it. I have to remind people who are listening to this episode for the first time, this was indeed the first Redemption Island season. So historically, that makes sense. And that's how the viewers would have watched it as well. They're very timid. Like, how is this going to work? When's a person going to come back? What's the person when they come back? What's their what are their their mindset going to be like? So the timidity, I think, is very it's kind of charming in a way because it's players learning a new twist for the first time. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. Always try to put yourself back in historical perspective of when these episodes aired and how they would have been viewed. It's a rebooted Borneo down to the Paganging. <laughs> yes. Okay, we're going to skip through this episode because it, 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 it munches. It just sucks. But uh, yeah, so basically it's Philip sparring with the young girls on Ometepe. The only one he really seems to get along with is Andrea or Andrea or however he decides Andrea. to pronounce her. Andrea, yeah. So <laughs> I, think, then, I think Propes gets an Andrea in there as well. And I don't know if it's him trying to help Philip's French vanilla fantasy or if like everyone kind of <laughs> drank something in the water, you know, that allows them to not pronounce each other's names. Yeah. So anyway, Philip is the problem child on this tribe. He can't get along with the young girls. They hate him. Although Philip will start it repeatedly saying, you know, Rob is the king and I'm the Lord and I'm going to knock him off when I get my chance. So again, like I said, there is a very sneaky Philip may win the season narrative, but that's really all that's going on in Ometepe. Most of the narrative for the next two episodes will be on Zapatera, which is really the big six. And I I swear to God, I should have written them down because I'll never remember all six of them. There's, I always forget there's a Sarita on this season. <laughs> anyway, it's six kind of older, less interesting people against Krista and Stephanie, who the, this episode and the next episode, all they do is complain that they're not being included, that the older people suck. And this is one of my big pet peeves of this whole era where Krista says, I hate these people. They're not playing the game. Yes, They're not playing yes, the game. yes. And this is where we get to the butt-munching Mario. This is yeah, exactly I, what it is. This is one of my biggest pet peeves in all of competitive reality TV. I hate when contestants say that they're deserving over other ones, and I hate, hate, hate when they say you're not playing the game because the implication 100% is 
you're not playing the game I want you to play, aka you're not doing things that I want you to do. And I would extend this even to other people on the season. I know that uh, we always take pot shots, right? At like Omotepe at the Rob Zombie group. But they they were definitely playing the game. We'll talk about it. We've talked about it. We will still continue to talk about it. There's a, there's a definite situation in an Omotepe endgame where Boston Rob ends up losing. He had to go with a particular configuration of people if he wanted to win. And I would imagine those Omotepe people were playing to make sure that they go to the end with Rob for that very particular reason. So yeah, it drives me up the wall to no end, and Krista insisting on making it one of her woody pull-string catchphrases for the three episodes she's actually shown on screen this season drove me absolutely bananas. It reminds me of, like, when you watch a sporting event, and, you know, they'll they'll interview, like, the coach or a player, like, before the game. They'll be like, what, what are your keys to today? And they always say, well, we're just going to go out there and play our game. And I'm like, basketball? <laughs> You know, and I understand what they're saying. You know, they've they've got a certain strategy that they're going to try to uh, try to go like, oh, we're going to keep the game up tempo, or we're going to, you know, and they don't want to give away everything in the interview and this, that, and the other thing. But it's always the we're going to play our game today, and it's like, well, you're both playing basketball, so I hope that that's the case, right? <laughs> and so when they're like, they're not playing the game out here, it's like we're on an island. There's cameras. It's Survivor? Question mark? <laughs> like. Yeah, and I, sh- I should point out, this is very important for our listeners. We're joking around about this. I don't believe that phrase existed on Survivor before Russell. And if you wonder why some old-timer people hate Russell with a burning passion, it's because he introduced this fucking phrase into Survivor. They're not playing the game. And you know, yeah, like exactly like Mike and Jay said, no, they're not playing your game. Shut the fuck up. They're still playing a game. And I hate that phrase. And like you said, Mike, this was Russell's catchphrase. They're not playing the game. They're not playing the game. Now Krista has adopted it. Now Stephanie has adopted it. You'll see it on fan message boards around the time people start adopting it. Oh, I don't like it because they're not playing the game. Shut the fuck up. That phrase never existed prior to Russell. I could not hate it more. Wow. Um, so the the person though who like drives me insane, I, I know that Krista munches Mike's butt in this whole thing, but the, the biggest muncher for me is Julie in all this because <laughs> because you hated her in part one. This is not I new. did. And like <laughs> she they they love the little like snippets she gives in confessionals because they use her all the time for stuff. But and I I will give her a little bit of credit. Maybe, you know, they they pull these little things she says out of context, so it may not actually reflect the, you know, the order in which she said things. But like during this whole thing and, and before we move into the immunity challenge and stuff, then they have her, you know, she's she's talking about how like, oh, I'm kind of afraid because we threw that challenge. You know, I think it might be karma. Like, uh oh. And then when we when we eventually get to the challenge loss, she we have her saying Oh, we actually won today because we get to get rid of one of the girls. So, like, it was like it, it was actually a winning situation for us today. And just like she always flips to be whatever like is <laughs> is the most suitable for whatever's happening in it. So, yeah, she she munches in a different way. So wait, Krista is a muncher, and because Julie talks shit about a muncher, that makes Julie even a bigger muncher. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> she she munches bigger and differently. This is like Super Pac Man at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. So yeah, there's a, 
just a lot of nothing burger going on in this episode. Krista and Stephanie whining. Nobody's playing the game. And then we go to the challenge. This is the, like one of those blindfolded challenges where yeah. someone leads the rest of the tribe through an obstacle course. I, I, pick... will, I will say like at least the highlight here is Ralph, right? Like uh, Stephanie gets picked to your point because I guess it doesn't get shown in the edit. But according to David, Sarita like insisted that everyone take turns. But Listen, Wait, but hold on before you get too far, Mike. This is it started coming out to me. I, I picked it up on in this scene right here where they're picking who's doing what. I start realizing here how Sarita uses words incorrectly and kind of messes yes. things up. Like she starts talking about Stephanie gets to do it because she's a linguist. Exactly. We know we all speak different languages here. And so Stephanie will be able to communicate with us. She's a universal translator. She's a study of linguistics. She really understands, you know, so many things about language. So that's why we're going to put her on the on this role. Nobody yeah. else is speaking the game. They're not speaking the game like she does. Well, to be fair, you probably need a linguist, right? When Ralph's like, no, there's nothing here. Where do I go forward, Stephanie, or backwards? That's why they picked Nick Brown back in Australia to, you know, be the first kind of call for that blind. Nick Brown was such a linguist. I didn't know that Ralph was also Hamsar. <laughs> oh, we should also say, uh, not to date this podcast too much, but unfortunately, as awkward as it is to announce here, Ralph Kaiser sadly did pass away between recordings. Yes, bless his heart, we do miss Ralph. But that being said, Mike just uttered one sentence that's never been uttered in the English language before. Hey, you know what the highlight of this part is? Ralph. I mean, listen, we were talking about with Christina, like Ralph kind of brings to his time. Like they always go to him for those little things. And I think to a point that Paul made earlier, like that would be not A or B material, but like really great C material to pay attention to on a season. Unfortunately, we have to rely on this as like the A or B material. You know, they're the third string QB that got called up because everyone else got injured on the field. Yeah, he's Big Big Tom's crazy cousin who's been kicked in the head by a horse, and they keep him up in the in the in the barn. He's our main narrator for Zapatera here. Also, rest in peace, Ralph. Anyway, so yeah, the the reward challenge, immunity challenge is the caller. They put Stephanie as the caller because quote unquote she's bossy. So <laughs> apparently that's good. But then at the end of the challenge, she has to solve a puzzle. And so it, it, we find out later, oh, she's not good at puzzles. Perhaps we should not put her of color. Anyway, I don't care about any of this. None of this is interesting other than the fact that as much as Probe says Zapatera is cursed and they can't win because they threw a challenge when they threw it to get rid of Russell, they actually do really well in most of these challenges. They just kind of choke at the end. And this is actually a fairly close challenge. Just Stephanie gets beat at the end by uh, who does the puzzle? Is it Rob? Yeah, I mean, safe to say if it's puzzle in Omentepe, it's going to be Rob. What? I thought I thought David Murphy was the big puzzle star of the season. How dare you? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's also interesting, though, that, like, and I guess this benefits from Rob's expertise, right? Like, he kind of breaks the first part of the challenge by just having one person go out and collect all the tiles, which ideally is probably the way you want to do it, right? He's like, he's, okay, I know that Grant can listen to me. I'm just going to have everyone else stay put and Grant go grab all the bags. It's because nobody else was playing the game. Only he was playing the game. All right. So anyway, Ometepe wins this challenge. They narrow it down to eight to seven. And again, just to remind people, Ometepe has never led in this season. They're the big underdogs. They're slowly chipping away. And what are they? They win a reward. They get some coffee, whatever. I don't fucking care. And they get, uh, they get the caffeine and sugar reward. That's right. The donuts, the sugar. And then Rob finds an idle clue. And he's like, I already have this idle clue. So, or no, he, he switches it. He goes and switches it with the one he already has and gives it to Grant. Again, none of this is remotely relevant to the season. They have to, but we have to fill 60 minutes of an episode. And I, I 
will say, though, I think I was relatively entertained by this. I mean, obviously, like, the big highlight is going to be Rob tossing a, an idle clue into a volcano, which will make, you know, uh, Monica Culpepper watch and, and, you know, think about something years and years after the fact. But I, 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 it's fun to see Boston Rob be, like, a little more impish and puckish, in my opinion, because Boston Rob is usually known as, like, especially Marquesas, right? Like, he was the laid-back shit talker. Uh, he just he just sit there and just, like, absolutely lay into people and mock them and make fun of them. And he still is certainly doing it here. Like, I'm sure he is thrilled to be on a tribe with Philip because it gives him stand-up material for 39 days. But I do like when Ma- Rob gets to be, like, a little schemy, not in the way of strategy, but just, like, not even pulling pranks, but just, like, doing stupid shit that, he, as he talks about later, right, like, keeps him entertained. Like, like you said, getting a clue, switching it out with the first clue, which was much more vague, and, like, passing it off, and then making Grant dig the clue and bury it like an idle clue tree is going to grow <laughs> from it. Like, it's very clear he's just trying to entertain himself, but also, I think, from his perspective, it's his fourth time out. He knows what's going to make for good TV. And I would say, relative to a lot of other stuff in this season, I guess it does comparatively. It's it's the equivalent. It's it's the you know Neo in the Matrix with the I know kung fu moment, you know where he is so he is so like ahead of everyone on Ometepe because he's played this game a billion times and he's you know no matter what your opinion of Boston Rob he is a competent enough player right like he's good at challenges he's good at puzzles he can relate to some people he can you know lead a tribe in some ways like. You know, are, are there shortcomings and stuff like that? Like, sure. But he is, you know, at the pinnacle of sort of, you know, his his prowess of this game. And he's out there with a bunch of newcomers who are, you know, leaning on him for certain things. And so it's literally the everyone else in slow is in slow motion. He's doing things. And like you said, Mike, switching the first the, the second clue out for the first one and giving the first like, does all of this matter? No, but it's like. It's literally just him, you know, running laps around people and kind of, you know, pointing to himself at the same time. It's just it's it's fun for us because we're in the know. Right. And so that's just sort of how it is. And to be fair, he's probably doing the producers a favor. He's like, there's not a whole lot going on. He probably knows what would make good TV because he's been around. So I'll give him credit for that. He's a he's a producer's dream. He probably works very well with the production staff. Well, not to mention, I believe at this point, I know Paul is like a connoisseur of reality TV. You can correct me if I'm wrong here. Like, this is after his entire, like, against the odds poker reality show where I know that, like, he played a fairly large part as well with crafting that story. So, yeah, he's, like, very tuned into, I think, storytelling on reality television. Yeah, and again, to go back to something I know Jay harped on this in part one, you might not like Boston Rob. He might not be your favorite winner, but... You know, if he wasn't here in this season, it would have been very, very dull. He he adds a lot to the season, whether you like him or not. Okay, let's go to Tribal Council. We're going to uh, basically Zapatera lost. They all stand around and point fingers at each other. Who should have been the caller? I know Sarita, I think that's her name, and David just point fingers and they don't like each other. And this this uh, rivalry will last yeah. for a while. I love that Sarita's like, the issue is David is really stressful under pressure. And David then proceeds to freak out under pressure. Uh, and just like, don't freaking go there. And they're like, oh, there might be a little crack there. But then like they completely undo any goodwill, right? Of like, oh, they're not, why? They're just playing to like, if what they're not playing about the fact that they they couldn't merge tomorrow. And they're not thinking about who will make it to the end when it's like, episode five dude why should they be talking about that at all 
Yeah, and I, again, I want to yada yada over a lot of this just because no one remembers any of this, and none of this is really relevant to the season other than Zapatero will slowly fall apart. But yeah, so we're going to go to Tribal Council. Krista will get voted out uh, as before, not before she munches a little more. But she says, yeah, well, nobody she, here is playing the game. Yeah, I was going to say, she's a muncher, but also perhaps a mathematician here because she does make a good argument that it will go from six to five to four to three. And I, I just really think we should acknowledge that uh, that great point she made there. You know, math and munching both start the same way. Well, they we do. are, we are going to infamously, I believe, this challenge starts uh, maybe one of my least favorite survivor challenges of put numbers in order from 1 to 100. And you knew that would be Krista's wheelhouse. <laughs> she would kill that. Yeah, so anyway, Krista gets voted out. Again, there's no surprises. It's just we're picking off the last of the... Uh, Russell residue. It'll be Krista here. It'll be Stephanie the next episode. There's not really any surprises. So yeah, um, <laughs> I, I dare to ask this question. Paul or Mike, would you like to eulogize Krista? This is all you, Mike. Munch away. There's, and I guess maybe this is me channeling through a, a man of my namesake, but there's a moment when Mike Cheezle basically tells Krista, like, you haven't talked to us at all about anything why don't you establish a bond and some trust that's strategy and that's krista clump in a nutshell and arguably stephanie as well and stephanie at least is going to have the wherewithal to be like fine i guess i'll participate in camp and talk with these people but like that to me is such a microcosm of how just moronic russell and his entire coterie was in this season right it was the stupid duality of thinking that they are like above it all with everybody else. But then when they get outsmarted, they're like, Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Why? I, why should I do this? I, it doesn't matter. They're not playing the game. They're not talking strategy with me. I'm like, it's a freaking two way street. And you're purposely putting up a roadblock on one side of the street. And you're like, why can't we go down the street anymore? Cause you put the roadblock up in there, Krista. It's something I wanted to bring up earlier. I get that there's tribe dynamics. I know that they're out there for, all the time that they are and and people rub people the wrong way and the, and the fact that Mike's like you're not talking to us and all that sort of stuff it's it's very very telling but you would think I understand that Russell had Krista and Stephanie and they were outvoted and Russell was outsmarted and they're they're an easy bunch of people to pick off and these other uh, people on the tribe have sort of formed an alliance and I get all of that I understand all of that but that being said wouldn't you think that one of the easier just kind of transitions to maybe get back in with a good graces is to come off something like Russell Hans and basically go, look, we made a mistake. You know, we, 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 we thought maybe cause you know, Russell, even though it isn't all that great and he's, you know, not very nice and all that sort of stuff, you know, he's had a good track record. We tried this thing. It wasn't good. We're so sorry. And you know, it may not work and it probably won't work. And I'm not, blind enough to think that that that's that's 100 but i feel like wouldn't that be an easier way to get back into some sort of tribe's graces especially as they're going to bring up in the next episode oh krista and stephanie not horrible in challenges maybe they could be you know part of this working alliance nope 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 and and, and the other problem is is that once they left instead of trying that krista and stephanie were like well we hate everybody hey rob <laughs> We hate our tribe. And it's like, are you trying anything? We try nothing and we're all out of ideas. Right, exactly. <laughs> the legacy of Russell Hans right there. 
Okay, yeah. So this next episode is really just the exact same thing as the last episode. Um, I'm going to really yada yada through this one. This is really where the episode is called Redheaded Stepchild, episode six, which uh, talks about Philip. That's how Philip will constantly describe himself, that everyone hates him. They all look down on him. Uh, all he does is he he do, tends the fire and none of the young girls tend the fire. And when he tells to ask them to help, they get mad. So that's Philip. Again, the entire plot line on Ometepe. Now let's go to Zapatera, or I guess we have to do the duel first. And this, there's actually something interesting in the duel in this episode where Krista goes to Redemption Island and she goes to meet Matt and she basically says, you know, my tribe sucks, they're all terrible, blah, 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 please get back in the game, beat them all. But what's interesting here is right before the duel where it's Krista and Matt on Redemption Island, she gets what her luxury item and it's a Bible. And oh my God, if you thought Matt was unstoppable before, this is like giving Popeye some spinach. Now Matt has a Bible <laughs> on Redemption Island. This this is like giving Coach a kayak. Oh, put some God in me bud, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, two I had written down here for them when they connect. One, I, like so Krista clearly was like, they were going for another Natalie White, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just the way... And I think it's kind of an insult to Natalie White to, to say Krista's like her, but her, her whole look, her aesthetic, we even have this towards the end of her run on the show, really comes out all of her um, her religious beliefs and those types of things. Um, but my favorite part of them kind of connecting together at Redemption Island is that um, they talk about, you know, how there's so much substance. I think Krista, Krista was so glad to talk to someone who had so much substance, you know, to them. And then, like, the next time we hear them interact, it's a... Uh, it's uh, Matt saying, you're not sneaking under the radar, Blondie. And she goes, neither are you, Blondie. Oh, look at all that substance there. And does, and doesn't he say, ooh, good one in response? Or some, <laughs> I, there's a lot of substance there, Mike. I couldn't write it all down. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have the duel. Krista goes and battles Matt. And, hey, guess what? Matt wins again. And now, after the duel, she gives him her Bible. So now Matt is armed with a Bible. He can read Bible verses anytime he wants. And like I said, it's, <laughs> he's extra powerful now. This is like if you give Big Tom some ham. This is now Matt with a Bible. The question well, is, I, I guess, I don't know if this is like religious, you know, exemption or something, but like, does this fall within the Vesepia category of like, you can't bring books out on the island as your, your luxury item? Well, I think it's <laughs> it falls into uh, whatever's going to really feed that narrative there, and I think they that definitely was uh, oh you know something they wanted from her. What if this um, was like the granola bar in Amazon, where it wasn't actually Krista's Bible? They just put a Bible in there to see what happens. <laughs> Each tribe right. got a Bible to see what would happen. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like a hotel room, you know, it's just in the drawer. Um, yeah, and then Ralph finds he's like, oh, I got a fancy book over here. But I, I mean, so much of, and obviously next season, we keep it teasing next season, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of talks about religion here. And there's a lot, I think, everyone would agree, religious people, non-religious people, there are some huge eye rolls when it comes to the role of religion um, and it comes to playing the game of Survivor. But it's actually one of the things that I don't hate about the season is kind of this question of how does that fit in? Because I think that is a question that's gone back you know, to the early seasons of Survivor is how do people who have these really strong values enter this game of of deception? And so I, I don't kind of mind. This one kind of came out of nowhere. It could have, would have been like maybe nice to kind of get that ahead of time to know that about them. But I, I don't hate the religious undertones that we see throughout this season. No, well, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's ahead. the fact that it's so jarring, right? In the sense that like all we knew about Krista was Russell, everybody else sucks. And now we're like, oh, here's another side of, of Krista. Cool. Are she's you, are gone. you, 
are you suggesting anyone surround, surrounding Russell, you would not instantly think of, this is a strong Christian person? <laughs> I'm just asking. I'm just asking. I mean, you are just asking. <laughs> Jesus wasn't playing the game. He wouldn't play in. All right. So anyway, let's move along. We've lost Krista. She's lost her duel. And uh, Matt's got his Bible. And uh, now let's go to any uh, the probably most people would argue this is the most interesting and significant storyline in Redemption Island, Sarita's Tooth. It yeah. is my favorite thing ever. It is like top three things coming out of Redemption Island. Like, I kid you not, the, the Sarita Tooth thing, I absolutely love. So what and... was it? It's that she cleaned her tooth with a dirty stick and now it's infected? And it got yes. some bacteria. And I will, okay, I will now munch my own words here, okay? Because I, I give Julie a lot of crap here, but Julie is amazing in the scene. How she is kind of like, like, just they clearly like put a camera in her face. We're like, can you explain what's happening with Sarita? And so she's kind of like, doesn't really want to talk about that much, but she's like, well, apparently she was cleaning her gums with the dirty stick and then she got some bacteria in it. I don't know how she knows that, but um, I think it's, the Serena 2 thing cracks me up every time. <laughs> okay, we learn a couple things in this episode. And again, I, I swear to God, I always forget Sarita is even on the season or a survivor player in general. But yeah, we learn that she is an uptown girl. She has no business being out here. She cleans her teeth with a dirty stick, which infects it with mud and bacteria. And this, the whole, again, the entire plot of this episode, I always forget you, that at one point in history, you could base an entire narrative around this episode. Is Stephanie going to be able to unseat Sarita and get her voted out instead? Well, I mean, that's where I think, that's, that's I think, where the shame of the season a little bit in this pre-merge and these Apatera people is like, there clearly was some funny stuff happening here, but but because we spent every episode with them up until now, the only thing was, team Russell and anti Russell. We never really like learned really anything about these like weird characters and, and, and these funny scenes. So um, if you going back to your question earlier, am I still enjoying the season? Yes. The little, little snippets we get from people like Sarita, who yes, is a survivor contestant. Those things crack me up and I, I do enjoy them. Which, which like, again, goes to my point of like, if Stephanie and Krista had had any modicum of effort slightly sooner, Right. Because there are there there does seem to be some sort of give and take in a way it, it's it appears to be whether it is or not. I don't know. But like we get this thing where like right after the tribal council in this episode, like because they voted for Steve. Right. Uh, before mm-hmm. in, in yeah. the previous one, Stephanie and Krista did on Krista's exit. And Steve's like, why did you vote for me? And Stephanie's basically like, because fuck you. That's why. <laughs> and, you know, then. In this episode, you know, Sarita's driving everyone nuts, and then Stephanie goes to David Murphy, and it's like, hey, maybe uh, maybe we vote Sarita out. And David's like, well, you're just going to have to talk to people and, and all that sort of stuff. And, like, she goes to Steve, and she's like, so about that, um, hi. <laughs> and it's like, God, oh. Well, I, I have to defend this a little bit. It's not only that scene where, where, she, where uh, Steve said, why'd you vote for me? And she goes, because fuck you. I have to point out, Steve gives it right back to her, and he says, well, you know what? It's just another instance of you being a stupid person who makes stupid choices. <laughs> <laughs> and then does it end kind of awkward with like, like it's like a half-ass thank you. Like, thank you for, because she says, I don't need to, she said, I don't need to like sit here and like, like explain this to you or something like that. And it was like, well, like, thank you for 
Your honesty. I can't, thank you for your honesty or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Steve is so sneaky funny. He's one of my favorite players of this era of the show. Just I love his little comments. There's not a lot of them. Okay. Anyway, so Sarita, I know enough about doing historians with Paul to know that he's going to love Sarita. <laughs> I can you know you. I'm going to love Sarita and hate Julie, right? Of course. Yeah. And we also know like, like Krista is a muncher. Sarita is a cleaner. She cleans okay. her teeth, so she's a cleaner. Sir- I mean, Sarita really is like the Zoe of the season. Like, definitely. How dare you? <laughs> Sorry. You take that back, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for Sarita's stick shack coming to Facebook in 2024. <laughs> Does anybody, I mean, I, I don't really follow Survivor players on social media. Have you guys, do you ever, have you followed Sarita? What is Sarita ever? No, I've just, you know I just, about I was curious. I ducked, she like has worked on, she worked like on some Toy Story movies and Ratatouille and the. I'm pretty like, sure she's just a collective figment of our imagination. I'm pretty sure as a Survivor <laughs> fan base, we created an 18th contestant by the name of, it's like what they did with the, the Sears fan, uh, you know, Jimmy T contest and the Papa Bear contest. It's going to happen next season of like, hey, everyone, let's work together to create a Survivor character. And we made an avatar named Sarita. And they're like, why is the AI picking her tooth with a dirty stick? There's going to get bacteria in there. Well, that's sorry. It's an old model. But Sarita's well, okay. Sarita's that, that thing where like, you know, it's that Simpsons joke where they're like, who likes the Doobie Brothers? Because we've got one of them. It's like, it's like, who likes Survivor Redemption Island? We have Sarita. Well, well hold on. Th- th- this may make things clear for you. When asked which Survivor contestant you were player most like, she's a combination of two Survivor players from China. This might help you like like realize her as a real person. So which two characters from survivors, China is she most like Jean Robert and James, <laughs> you got James. So you definitely is she James and Denise's love child? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite James and a female contestant. Jamie, please say Jamie. Well, she's, uh, oh, she, she, I would say she's an uptown girl, so it's got to be Courtney, right? It's got to be Courtney, yes. So kind of, you know, just picture a Courtney meets James, you get a Sarita here. <laughs> okay, I want to I wanna follow up on something you said. She really worked at Pixar on those big movies? Yeah, she's, well, a, I mean, she's a visual a, effects person. According to her Wikipedia, it talked about how she was a character coordinator for Ratatouille, a visual... Uh, effects producer for the bear show and a director of the story of Aya, as well as a story manager for toy story shorts. Wow. So, I mean, Sarita is a fucking badass. I have to say. Yeah. Works successful in the industry. Seems like I just like some of this weird stuff. She puts in here. What's your personal claim to fame getting from point A to B without a dollar in my pocket, only my own ambition to get there. But what's point A to B? That's what I'm so confused by. I'm saying this is why she's an artificially constructed person. She just took these random aphorisms and just threw them (laughs) in like, oh, early bird catches the worm. You know, catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And they decided to produce her. That's why she's a visual effect. Like she's an actual hologram of a person that they put out. CGI bread. I don't know. It, it, she seems like you know down to earth and successful in some in some ways in, in her thing. Like uh, it, it almost just seems like the the exit interview question should just be why did why are you here? Like <laughs> this you, this, why, this why thing about her. Well, here's what I think they're going for, and this is like not even me trying to be like funny here. Like what why they asked her why you think you'll survive Survivor before the game starts. She says my earliest memories of my hippie parents living in the yurt we built from scratch, <laughs> our garden, our garden, our outdoor shower, our pretty little outhouse. I know how to live the most basic way. I think that's what they were kind of going through. She was this hippie child and 
it's I think that's kind of obviously we didn't get a lot about that. That's I get another my points. I think we had really interesting people with interesting backgrounds here, but the narrative of the first half of the season, especially, we don't really we don't get to go any deeper with these people. Uh, I remember the old watering hole, the bacteria infested sticks that we used as toothbrushes. Life in the yurt. <laughs> also, life as life as an uptown girl in the yurt. That we know this does lead to an interesting question that I think a lot of people is probably sitting in the back of their mind right now. How the fuck is she compared to James Clement? <laughs> James and Courtney. That's what you get. You get James and Courtney, throw them in a yurt. Get a yeah, I'm uptown girl. I'm digging graves for people. Like what? Yeah. How does James work into this equation at all? I'm so befuddled by. Uh, I think it's. I think. I think they probably just showed them probably heroes versus villains. I'm guessing so they could know who Rob and Russell were, and then they also got, and she couldn't get to the whole season. She couldn't get to the merge on that, so that was just it was. You know, limited options there for who she could. Maybe it's a catchphrase, Mario. Like maybe she's in those pitch meetings and they're just like, oh, what should we have in this next scene with Ratatouille? Should he like cook something or, you know, teach the guy to do something? No, he should bury someone. (laughs) Maybe. No, hold on. But no, she did say, okay, the strange, so she acknowledges here, strange combination between Courtney with her awkwardness in challenges. Uh, Why are you on Survivor? (laughs) And James with his kindness and blind loyalty and also my grandma ripped the heads off bats and put them in soup for me <laughs> they <laughs> like, also so, that your... so what you're what I, I guess i'm leaning with mike because you know this soup is is spitting out like so you have someone who was raised in a yurt in the in the middle of of, of basically common land <laughs> who is now a big city movie visual artist you know type person who also says that she would blindly loyally follow somebody which that's is That's what I'm saying like, man character by that committee is, that's this is how man. you made the camel Oh <laughs> And she's like you know when I watch heroes versus villains you know who I hated fucking Stephanie I want to yell at Stephanie I re- that reminds me so much of James his hatred of Stephanie One is voice It's a James thing jeez okay Yeah that's right that was a James thing remember and then he had a broken leg. So <laughs> Sarita, just a wonderful booyah bays of, <laughs> of, of different traits and With the backgrounds. Au- the awkwardness of Courtney and the limping of James. That's why I'm a combination. Yes, and then she created herself in a CGI lab, much like Brett, and put herself on a season. I think it's just a it's, it's a medley of vegetables that you kind of cook together and may, oh, this is an idea for a movie. There you go. <laughs> You know, we just spent five minutes talking about Sarita. Just wanted to point that out. Thank you, Paul. World record. World record. Would you rather talk about that or Boston Rob referencing Yasser Arafat? (laughs) Okay, well, uh, I'm okay. Well, again, this is our goal when we go into these podcasts. We hope to get you guys to enjoy these seasons. Like, even if you don't enjoy them on a strategic level or who the winner was or what, you know, the theme or the, the pacing editing. We hope you now enjoy Sarita as much as we do. So there you go. Thank you. Okay, let's get through this episode, which has nothing to do with Sarita, mostly other than her tooth. <laughs> so, so I do also love, I do want to point out, you mentioned it earlier. I do love the psychology of of Philip, who like is the main fire tender and like wants to do it because, you know, that's like his thing, you know, like I'm, I'm tending the fire. And then all of a sudden he's like, I want someone else to do it. And then he like, ask them to do it and they're like well aren't you doing it kind of thing and we don't want to do it and then he's just like now i'm angry and it's like did you did, did you focalize that you thought this should be a uh 
like a community sort of job or something like that. Like maybe it was, but it doesn't seem that way. It just seemed like Philip just did the job and then like secretly resented it inside. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. It's an odd dynamic because like, again, I, I feel like we're supposed to be following Rob this entire season that like Rob is the one that speaks to us directly. And like, even he's saying like, yeah, of course the girls aren't doing anything. They're 19 and 20 years old. So like, to your point, Jay, like, are we supposed to sympathize with them here for Philip coming out of nowhere? Are we supposed to sympathize with Philip for, like, these girls are cutting each other's armpit hair with a rusty pair of scissors and doing nothing else around camp? Like, I'm just not sure how to feel about this group. Okay, and I, I will bring it down a second because there is something I want to talk about just because Jay has brought it up before. And it's very important to not joke around and actually discuss this. There's a whole scene here where Philip gets in a fight with the girls, as you alluded about the uh, the fire, and and it gets really nasty that Philip's yelling at Ashley and Natalie and Andrea's get, kind of getting between them, and and Rob says this is not good. This fracture will break our tribe apart. So he has to go to Philip and calm it down, and basically said, basically Philip, you know, you're my buddy. I trust you, even though they don't. I like you. And Rob, of course, is very good. And this is the little subtle stuff he doesn't get credit for in these episodes at reining Philip in. Yet at the same time, he still kind of stokes the dissension between Philip and the girls because he wants them to not like each other. So the heat will always will never be on Rob. It'll always be on someone else in the tribe. So simultaneously, Rob is keeping the tribe strong while making sure there are always scapegoats other than Rob people can vote for, which I have to say is incredibly impressive. Yeah, I think it helps the fact that Rob has made it to the end. And I think perhaps unlike the other returning player on this season, perhaps knew why he ended up losing the way that he did, where I think he has jury management in the back of his head the entire time. Now, granted, he still feels like there are certain points where like his game might be teetering on the edge, but he really sees that day 39 pretty much from day one, which you should almost never do in the game of Survivor. When we get to Survivor Karamoan in the year 2037, and we talk about what, like, Sherry tries to do with Shamar, right? She tries to do the exact same thing that Rob is doing with Philip here, of like, all right, I picked my goat on day two. You should almost never do that because you can never see that far ahead. I think due to just this particular configuration, Rob is really meticulously planning out, like, each and everything, how it's going to go. And it ends up just, like, playing out to perfection to the point where he does vocalize here, right? Like the, okay, uh, I am, you know, I don't want the girls to do anything because not only will it put the target onto Philip, but it'll make sure that like if and when we merge that that negative attitude will carry forward and it'll give the jury another reason to not vote for them. Like Rob mm -hmm. is one of the only pre-merge players I can think of who is vocalizing jury stuff on day 15 or 16 in the game, which again, you shouldn't necessarily be putting at the forefront of your mind, but I think where a lot of Rob's really great stuff in this game comes from is his ability to pick up on these things and be able to, like, plan out his ideal final three as a result of these sort of, you know, behavioral tendencies. I think what we don't notice, and it's it's the Natalie White type game. It's it's something that, you know, Mario pointed out in, in Funny 115 and other things like that, where, like, where Russell is, you know, in in, in the... You know, in Samoa, Russell is, you know, berating people and, you know, kind of flaunting his power and flaunting all of these things. And Natalie is just in the background talking to people, making connections, asking about their family and doing all these things that are not necessarily interesting to watch on a on a TV camera. But 
it's it's connecting with people and that's that's ultimately the game of survivor and the thing is is that people are going to say in the reunion and other things i guess i'm just going to let it out now rob is meticulous at this in this season and we're just not seeing it in in some of the earlier seasons that rob's in he does some of the work at the beginning and sort of establishes himself as a hard worker good challenge person and a good leader and then sometimes he's sitting back and kind of you know just ruling over the roost where he's doing less of that this time I mean, yeah, he's probably being pulled away by the camera people and doing a million confessionals. But, you know, some of the contestants on Ometepe and, and later on, they're going to talk about how, like, Rob spent an entire day with them doing some activity they wanted to do and talked about their families and stuff like that. And it's like, this is what Rob is doing. And mm -hmm. and and people are like, oh, they just blindly followed him because he's Rob and blah, blah. And it's like they're listening to him because they they already recognize him as a returner and a leader and someone who is, you know, one of the top players of Survivor, which doesn't hurt the situation. But then Rob is listening to them and connecting with them and doing all of these wonderful things. And we're not seeing it as part of the show because they don't want to they want to tell that narrative and they don't think that that's good TV. But that's what's happening. Yeah, and I I never really appreciated that until you mentioned it back in part one, Jay. So I'll give you full credit for this, that you really turned me on to the stuff that Rob does that's little, that if you look for it, you can see it. And Rob even explained some of it, how he has to bond with people. He has to, it, he uses the word control, but a lot of that is just for the cameras. What he's really doing is, like Mike said, planning for the end game. He's keeping everyone happy, but he's also very subtly making it so they can never team up and blindside him. So he's doing a lot of stuff simultaneously. And like you said, it's really impressive. And I would argue, I think I've made this point before, that really good Survivor players don't make the best TV because it's only mm -hmm. interesting when people screw up. So this is, a, to go back to what we joked about earlier, this is why I think South Pacific is so much more interesting and fascinating than Redemption Island because Coach is not an inherently good Survivor player. And that's what makes him so dynamic to watch as he walks himself into corners. Rob will never walk himself into a corner, which is what simultaneously makes him great at Survivor, and I'd argue maybe not the most interesting to watch, because he just doesn't screw up. Right, I, I, I totally agree that I do think, like, the interpersonal stuff, because here's the thing, as much as, again, we might malign the idea of Rob zombies, like, if, if they didn't like Boston Rob, they wouldn't be following him. Again, mm -hmm. these are people who get cast on reality TV for a reason. You'd imagine from some perspective, like, they certainly have an ego about them and, like, would want to have things be their way or the highway. We even get this a later on in, like, episode 9 when Grant's like, I'm gonna eat this fish that Zapatera is offering me. I don't necessarily care. I'm my own man. And so, you really have to put it on the shoulders of Rob, who... Yeah, he. I think he maybe is an underrated social player. And granted, you know, it wasn't really that way in All-Stars, but it was a different game in All-Stars where he was playing with, like, legit friends. Here he's mm -hmm. playing with fans. Uh, and so I think that he's able to utilize that ground zero relationship to foster more of a fabricated bond as opposed to something in all-stars right where he was already coming in with something that he promptly broke here he he was i think more so on an even playing ground with them and i think again as much as we talk about the boston rob rules quite literally there's a book about them in the strategic sense of things i do think from a social perspective yeah there there's clearly something there there i think rob is very good and something I'm going to give him credit for. I think Rob is very good at understanding. It's it sort of goes with the you know with his poker series and and like you said, understanding reality TV and the narrative. I think Rob understands who he is in 
in respect to where like what season of Survivor he's playing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. In in the sense that like yeah, you know, as I think Mario has said, like that's why he doesn't like returning seasons because. You know, the first time you get out there, that's that's the game you're playing. Right. And then when you have returnees, it's different. And it's like, yeah, it is different. But if you acknowledge it's different and try to work that different to your advantage, that's what you need to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So Rob tried to do some pregame alliance stuff in All Stars and things went and this, that and love. And yeah. And then in Heroes versus Villains, like he couldn't get the win and, you know, things didn't bounce his way. But we we joked about it, but like at the beginning when they get on the mat and you know Jeff Probst says, "How do you feel here, Rob, being part of the villains tribe?" and Rob just cracks that smile and says, "I'm a villain." And it's like from then on, you're like he understands who he is and he's gonna play this to his advantage, right? Mm-hmm. And in this season, he sort of sees it. He gets on the beach and he sees that these are people who are looking up to him. As Mike said, they're kind of fans of his. I mean, who wouldn't be at that point? Like if you're going out there and playing Survivor and Boston Rob shows up, you're going to mark out a little bit. It's just kind of what's going to happen. And he uses all of this to his advantage. He's comfortable. He's played the game a million million times. He understands the hunger, the, the camera situation, the living situation. Everything is comfortable for him. He's comfortable. And so he understands what he is to these people. And he then can use all of that to leverage advantages and to understand what he needs to do and how to connect with everyone within this game. It's quite, it's quite brilliant. I don't think that he's like the most brilliant person ever, but I think he, he fundamentally understands who he is and who he is in, in respect to everyone else in the game. Yeah. And I just want to clarify one thing you said that I said, I don't like returning player seasons and I I've kind of modified that stance over the years. The ones that I don't like are the all-star seasons, the full all-stars, because what most fans don't know is those seasons are almost 100% predetermined by pregame alliances, which I just don't find interesting. I just don't find that interesting at all because they can't even explain why people are teaming up other than we decided to before the season. So I really couldn't care less about all-star seasons. Now, where it's one person against a team like this one, I find a little more interesting because it ties into what you said, Jay, that he knows where he stands in history. He knows his legacy. He knows what they know about him. So I find that much more interesting. And there's also no way he can pregame with these people because he doesn't know them. So that's my stance. Like I couldn't care less about all-star seasons, but returning player seasons in general, where it's just one or two like this or South Pacific or even like Philippines, I can see the, the inherent appeal in that because there, there is a opportunity to have a more nuanced storytelling with a season like that. Okay, so let's get rid of Stephanie here. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're, there was a challenge, and there was there was there was a slingshot challenge, right? Yeah, yeah there's a slingshot. Then, well, challenge. this is this is just the Grant wins challenge because I think they had yeah. to score five points, and Grant scores four of them, and they pretty much figure out early on. Okay, Natalie just shoots to Grant to the point where like technically Omotepe couldn't sit someone out, but they technically sat Philip out because I don't think that dude touched a slingshot once. <laughs> Okay, there's a great little moment. Again, there's a couple funny fill-up moments in the season that I think people tend to forget where they get to the challenge, the immunity challenge in episode six, and Jeff, just trying to make small talk, as you do, says, uh, hey, Philip, which animal comes out today, the gorilla or the lion? And Philip says, both. And Probes is like, both? <laughs> but I just love that, that little... But, and then he goes to Steve for a comment. Yeah. Steve comments, and Steve's like, yeah, forearm, boom, like he's going to hit Philip in the head. Yeah, I don't like I like I would think was I was less mystified by the Philip thing because again we've gotten the two tattoos, but like why does Steve respond with a forearm? What's what's that? Why did you do that? Don't mean him on his level, Steve. Then you're playing in the mud. 
Yes. Anyway, so yeah, uh, Ometepe wins really easily. Grant destroys them in this challenge. It, uh, it's not even close. So it's it's almost as if he he could play wide receiver in the NFL. <laughs> almost as if, yeah. So uh, Ometepe wins, and at this point, the season is going to be tied because Zapatera's just lost again. We're going to be down to an equal number of uh, people on a on a tribe after this. And this is where we get a reward here. They go up like on a hill, right? Ometepe gets flown up in a helicopter up on a hill. <laughs> I like how like, there's a, a Jesus statue, right? Yeah, there's a big statue, but they didn't think it's Jesus at first, which might be an insult to the poor sculptor. Like, yeah, who do you think that is? <laughs> I don't know, giant man with long hair and a robe who's holding a hand out in benevolence. I don't know, Paul Anka? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Paul Anka? Yeah, where'd you get Paul Anka from? That's a Philip reference. I'm sure he was the one that brought it up. <laughs> He's got Paul Anka on one shoulder and Fabian on the other shoulder. Fabian. That's right. Oh, now my we're... God. <laughs> okay, so anyway, uh, this is the scene where... Rob and Grant find another idle clue inside the coffee and they try to sneak behind the Jesus statue to do some subterfuge and Philip catches them and Philip's very angry because he thinks that they're in, he's in an alliance with Rob, blah, blah, blah. But the historic part, I believe this is the first time in Survivor history where he utters the word stealth are us. Is that correct? Yeah. Ooh, I didn't catch that, but yeah, probably, huh? Yeah. So he's I gonna, don't remember. No, no, I think it is. I think he, because I think we don't really get a confirmation. I'm trying to remember. I know that Rob brings Philip in, like in episodes two through four, but I don't think we ever got outright explicit reference of like the three guys being in a group together until this moment. And yeah, I clocked it as well that it is Stealth RS. So here's the big question, and it's I feel like it's a question that's like 90% of Philip Shepard questions. Do you think he legitimately came up with this in the moment, or do you think he was he walked in being like, "I'm going to name an alliance stealth RS," kind of like what Boston Rob does with Merlonia later on? I, I'd never believe anything Philip does is spontaneous. Any other thoughts on that? Nope. Paul, I know you're a big stealth RS. You're a, you're a fan, right? Um. Yeah, I don't. I, I kind of am in the Mario camp of I feel like it's like I like the hesitation from Paul. They're like, do I unmute my mic for this or do I not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, I think I'd agree with Mario about there being um, something calculated everything he does, but I mean, he could have also I feel like could have been on the island thinking about things and come up with this, um, and, you know, ready for the right moment to kind of pull it out. I don't know that he necessarily went into the game with it, but but, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, maybe it makes more sense that it came from a malnourished brain. It's like it's like I need a name for my stealth operation that will create the most successful alliance in Survivor history, and I'll name it after a toy store. Genius, <laughs> Philip, you're an absolute genius. Toys the rest will be around forever. <laughs> yeah, okay, for the record, for historical purposes, I'm by law required to do this. This is the first mention of Stealth RS. We will hear endless references to it later in the season and also in Caramoan, even more so. Uh, the first members of Stealth RS are the Specialist, that's Philip, the Minimalist, Rob, and the Assassin. Wait, no, Grant. the Mentalist. He's not Marie Kondo, Mario. Oh, really? I heard Minimalist. It's it's the Mentalist? <laughs> Why would he be the Minimalist? I, how dare I besmirch the fine name of Stealth RS? I apologize to Philip. That would be Sarita in the yurt. You can't have a lot of things in the yurt. Exactly. Okay, yeah, but anyway. Old Dirty Tooth, Sarita. She's a cleaner. Oh, yeah, so anyway, so this is the very first mention of Stealth RS, and this will over 
take any discussion of Philip in any scene he's in, any season from here on out. And I have to say, as fascinating as I find Stealth R Us, I find myself more interested in just about anything else on the face of the fucking earth. Well, I think it's it's to your point, it just seems very fabricated to the point where yeah. the exact same thing happens on the next season, right? And when we talk our returning player season about like, oh, you're trying to do the same thing, but like this felt a little too on the nose, right? Like he's getting ready to sell Stealth R Us as a brand, trying mm-hmm. to shop it around its Shark Tank a la Edna Ma, and it wasn't necessarily taking, so he was like trying to to make it happen. And much like what usually happens when you try to make things happen, it doesn't end up really happening. Correct. That's very well said. Okay, although Philip does have a very interesting line here that I quoted earlier in the uh, podcast where Philip is very mad that Grant and Rob have been hiding secrets from him. And he says, you lie to Philip Shepard, you lie to a soldier. And then he and the United States have something to say to you, baby. So not only is Philip now defending the honor of himself, he's defending the honor of the entire country against Robin Grant. So just, just if you're in the United States, just know that you sleep safely tonight knowing Philip is protecting you against Robin Grant. Hello, General Secretary of Defense. I've got a bone to pick with a certain dreaded out former wide receiver and a man from Boston slash Florida who's been on one too many reality shows. I call him the minimalist, I think. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the end of the episode. So Zapatera loses. We go to Tribal Council and David Murphy is trying so hard to keep Stephanie around because at least Stephanie's playing the game. And Zapatera wants nothing to do with it, and blah, blah, blah. We lose Stephanie, and that's it. And basically, it's now tied at 6-6. Six to six. Ometepe has finally caught Zapatera. Is that it? I think, we're, I think we're up into the Sarita episode now, Paul. Yeah, I can't wait. But I, I do think it is. I mean, they the show saw a lot of things in, uh, in Stephanie, the fact that they wanted her to come back, and she was on the ballot for the second chance of the season down the road. So um, too bad Krista and Sarita weren't on that ballot as well. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, because I believe her and Natalie Tenorelli were both on the ballot. Correct. Who do you think, from a popular vote perspective, came closer? I, I mean, would guess Stephanie, because she's closer to the Russell type that people like. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. It just was kind of an odd choice, a pre-merge boot like that that they threw in there. And it'd been the timing of I think it was too long. I think had you like had you had this within a year of the season airing, I think for sure Stephanie would have had more votes. Um and for sure more than Natalie, I think. But I don't know. I feel like over time I feel like you almost m- might remember Natalie more just for making it to the end. But um Stephanie was more of the the feisty person that some fans gravitate towards. Did did Stephanie? She did not get voted in, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So the fans. Wow, you're such a lo- you're such they a lover of new school Survivor. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have no idea. <laughs> How many I, times I, did she play? <laughs> yeah, she did not get in. The fans were not playing the game. Yeah, no, I I barely remember uh, Cambodia. I had to think of what the title was even. <laughs> okay, episode seven. I'm gonna really gonna zip through this one because the next one, episode eight, is the really big one. This one is basically. David Murphy against Sarita. That's the entire episode. Them two arguing with each other. And uh, although first we have to have a duel, right? Where Stephanie goes to Redemption Island. She meets Matt. She's like, you know who fucking sucks? Everybody on Zapatera. Please kill them all for me. <laughs> so that's about it. So now we go to the duel. And this, I think, is where Phil Philip pulls out the code of the samurai, right? right? Even though he mispronounces it. Yeah, the Bushido code. Which is Bushido, right? It's pronounced Bushido. I should get coached to answer this, but he says Bushido, which is not correct. 
I mean, listen, we know what Philip and names necessarily go together. They're not <laughs> as good as a slice of red velvet from a bakery or milkshake with peanut butter in it, right? When Stephanie's pulling both a Jerry and Amber combined and Matt is just like really annoyed by Stephanie at all times. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is this is a we're just going to whip through this because Stephanie is her her storyline is over. She's got to get out of there. But we have the duel her against Matt. Matt beats her in a memory game. And then at the end, what Stephanie starts crying and says, please, uh, Zapatera, vote out Sarita. It's your only chance. Keep David. She's trying to protect David. And anyway, that's that's it for Stephanie. Yeah, there there is a fun moment of editing. I will say that, like, there are cute touches of editing over the course of this that I know, Mauro, you were one that really beats the drum of, like, one of the strongest things that's occurred in Survivor throughout 40-plus seasons are the little uh, small jokes editors put in here. And before we end up getting to the duel, there's a scene where Philip, for the umpteen time, is complaining about, like, Rob wants to control everybody, but he's not going to get me. Cut to Boston Rob telling Philip, like, you have to wear a shirt to the duel. And it's just sort of like, <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, I like that scene. That, that There's a couple funny little moments in this episode in particular. That's one of them. And there's another one where Philip, what is it? He goes to the duel and he's like, uh, oh, so Stephanie talked all this shit about her tribe afterwards. What should we tell our tribe? And Rob's like, just tell him everything, Philip. You don't hide stuff from your tribe. And then Rob immediately goes behind Philip's back and says, yeah, Philip was saying this. And he would like, he, he, he says one thing and then does something else. Just showing the kind of control Rob has over Philip. All right. So yeah, this is basically uh Zapatera is now tied at six to six in episode seven. They're worried they're going to keep losing and they have to start talking about who they want to get rid of next. If they lose again, it's either going to be David for just being a, an asshole or Sarita for being an uptown girl who has no skills and cleans her teeth with, bacteria infected teeth or uh, sticks. But yeah, so we, that's the whole episode here. We do learn from Sarita that this is a little earlier episode, but she loves constructive feedback and she has so much respect for David. And then doesn't she later on say she wants to punch him in the face because of his swear? <laughs> or maybe it's because his mouth is full of so many clean teeth and she's so jealous. <laughs> that that could be. That's the James Clement in her, the punch to the face. So I, now I see it. I, I will say though, like, I don't know. To me, David Murphy is kind of condescending. I know to a certain extent, like, I fist pumped a little bit for him at the end of the season because, like, as someone who had been rooting for Rob at the end there, I was like, okay, I'm glad he does what he does at the final Tribal Council, though I'm sure I'll have a different opinion when we actually get to it. But, like, when you actually get into it, he is probably some of the, like, biggest negative stereotypes associated with the lawyers, right, of, like, always has something to say, always negative, always argumentative. And yeah, I feel like in this moment, sure, maybe Sarita is sort of getting on the nerves with him, but like he is taking things so over the top and just has this tone about him that to that point about like the low energy and the negativity feels like he unfortunately is kind of like the center of that vortex. <laughs> Did you write down the Ralph quote about David? Since I know you like doing your Ralph impression. Uh, don't take smart to win this game. Is yeah. that one? Well, the other one is, uh, you know, the stereotype about lawyers, they always think they're better than they are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I, I think that, Ra I mean, Ralph sort of is espousing what he talked about in the first episode, right? Of just like, yeah, you don't need to be book smart to end up winning Survivor. You just have to have, you have to be street smart in a manner of speaking. And actually, it's, it's an interesting sort of foreshadowing, right, for how this season turns out that, Philip Shepard in a couple episodes is going to give him his entire CV, which spans, you know, decades upon decades of education. And who <laughs> beats him? It's the freaking construction guy from Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, let's uh, 
let's get to the back to the important part of this episode, the crispy rice. I, I swear to God, I hadn't watched this season in a while. I'd forgotten about the whole crispy rice subplot and how integral it is to this season. So for people who do not remember this, this uh, basically when Ometepe cooks rice, there's always the little crispy stuff at the bottom that tastes different and is crunchier. And that is reserved for Boston Rob. Nobody else can touch the crispy. And here in episode seven, Philip is going to have an absolute shit fit because he wants some crispy. He doesn't know why Rob gets the crispy. And he's like, I'm 52. I'm the elder. I should get the crispy. So <laughs> anyway, one of my favorite little subplots in the season, the crispy rice drama. Do we have any thoughts on crispy rice? I just always like to think about with crispy rice that um, maybe we've talked about this at some point in the in the history of the show, but that isn't it both Tina and Rob are both the two that have to have it a certain <laughs> way, the crispy rice. I think it's just like a funny, unique, like survivor winner trait that there's two of them that have to only eat their rice crispy because they're such picky eaters. And then there's yeah. Mike Scoopin who just eats uncooked rice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is the crispiest rice, so I can see his point. It's something that strikes me as odd because I was raised like my family for some reason, uh, like the main starch side that we had growing up was rice usually, you know, instead of potatoes or, or other things like that. So like rice to me is like a super default food for for a lot of what I'm cooking and, and, and thinking and preparing and stuff like that. And like to get like someone like Tina in Australia when she's like, I don't like rice. I'm just like what like how, how do you how do you not do that like I, I don't understand and then the other thing that i think about is who in survivor australia really loved their rice do you mean by cooking it or like consuming it by consuming it oh my god is that where we're going <laughs> yeah we're going okay. to amber oh wow so I'm, like, rice I, wars. Yeah. I'm like am i making this noise or is someone else gonna make yeah. the uh i, I wanted someone to make sound, it sound so. so it's it's funny how like rob's like oh, i know i need the rice crispy and you know amber and it's like amber's probably like trying to like have rice sides at home and rob's <laughs> like no burn it <laughs> this better just... be chard i swear to god <laughs> I was just thinking of the Tina thing. I swear to God, Amber, do not bring that rice in here. (laughs) If I don't hear crunching, I'm not eating it. (laughs) Yeah, you're saying Tina never saw loved rice. I completely forgot. I always forget that one. One of my favorite things about her, the rice. She she can only eat it in a certain way. Like if it's too sticky, she literally gags, which I have never seen someone gag on rice before. Until then, you mentioned, you know, Tina has a weird background. She, like, grew up in a cave in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's possible she never saw rice until she was, like, 40. So I'll give her a little bit of a pass. She only saw Doritos. (laughs) Yes. Now, do you think—now, how do you think Sarita interacts with rice? Was there a lot of rice in the yurt? (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm just hearing Tina try to say Sarita's name, and I'm I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) Sarita. Yeah. (laughs) I was on a tribe with Sarita. Sarita, do you want a Dorito? Sarita? <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> we have nowhere to go. We've somehow reached no, peak historians. Exactly. Right? This is this what this like again, do you like this this stretch of the season? We're making freaking stupid jokes about Sarita. Do you want a Dorito? So no, I don't. <laughs> It's like George Costanza. This is where we have to leave him laughing and sign off. So thank you. Thank you for listening to historians. All right. 
Episode seven. This is the uh, the immunity challenge. This is basically it's six to six at this point in the game. This is a very crucial. Again, people forget how close this season was. It wasn't just Rob stomping everyone all the way. It's still very close. This is an immunity challenge. It's an obstacle course. It's like and an again, everything challenge, right? Like it's, yeah, you got to do all the stuff. Well, it was. I believe it was a redo, right, of the three little pigs challenge that they did back in Nicaragua. The like you know, one in a billion chance of the guys versus the girls of like, okay, you have to run through the straw and then through the sticks and then through the bricks. They just didn't outright say it. And then ah. at the end, shoot some baskets. <laughs> As the pigs did. That was the epilogue. They shoot baskets. Yeah, they played some <laughs> They played some horse at the end of it with the big bad wolf. <laughs> yeah, so again, in their defense, the narrative of the season from Probe's point of view is going to be Zapatera threw a challenge and then they were cursed and they never succeeded in anything ever again. But you watch this challenge. They're winning this whole challenge. Uh, Ometepe gets out early. Zapatera catches them later and gets to the end. And when they're shooting the baskets, you have to get six baskets in. Zapatera is up, I think, five to three at one point. Like, they're right on the cusp of winning and taking over the season. And then Grant goes beast mode over on Ometepe and makes basically three in a row and wins it. But it's really, really close. It's nowhere near the cursed, terrible Zapatera tribe that the narrative would have you believe. And really with that, that's really going to be the end of the road for Zapatera when they lose the challenge here in Episode 7. And uh, Ometepe wins an attached reward, which is... Uh, very, very iconic moment in the season. Everyone remembers this. They go up to a volcano. They get to have a picnic up on an active volcano. Rob finds an idle clue, and he doesn't need it, so he throws it backwards into the volcano, which I cannot tell you how many people have told me over the years that should have been a funny 115 entry. I'm like, what the hell would I have write about that entry? Yeah, he threw a clue into the volcano. Like, <laughs> I have no idea why that moment's as beloved as it is, but it really is. That's when people think of Rob in Redemption Island, they think of him throwing that clue into the volcano. Well, it's no, not. You should funny, have been a Sarita entry, not one of the, not a volcano entry. <laughs> it's not funny per se, but it's it's great TV, right? Like, yeah, it's great. That's, it's just, fun. that's just Rob knowing knowing his his camera angles and his audience, right? Exactly. Yeah, and, and that was a fun runner as well, where we got, like, the one, two, three, where Rob finds the idol, and I think, what, like, episode four, episode five, he does the clue trade-out, episode six, he finds it, and, the, no, he makes Grant find it, right, and then does the whole, like, okay, well, we better read what happens, and then episode seven, he's like, yeah, screw all this Mishigash, like, I had Philip mad at me for a hot second, I'm just going to, like, dispose with this into a natural structure and let the lava consume it. <laughs> you know what, what would have been even better if we had Sarita up there on a volcano, or is it not funny anymore? Have we have we killed it? <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's funny enough. It's still funny. Come on, God damn it! It's the volcano Rob. is equally funny as Dorito. Rob cast it into the fire. <laughs> I was there at the fall of Zapatera. <laughs> <laughs> Only there can it be unmade. <laughs> I mean, Rob is, is a... Rob Rob is sort of like Sauron, right? He has the eye that oversees everything. Like if yeah. you get caught in his purview, then he's gonna enact the ultimate evil on you and lay down the smackdown. This is a weird podcast. We are this even by our standards, you guys. This is a weird one. I hope you're enjoying this. Ralph, I mean, has, we, Ralph has big Gimli energy. IMO. To to be fair, we haven't done this in a while, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so episode seven, we're about to lose Paul's favorite contestant in Survivor history, Sarita. 
Although it's going to come down to, again, do we get rid of David because he's an asshole or Sarita because she's useless? And Paul, I'll let you, I'll let you monologue. Because she's a, because she's a Courtney in challenges, an awkward Courtney. Well, I love, I uh, love, before Paul eulogizes, it's really like the, well, David could be good in challenges. (laughs) I guess we'll go with David. (laughs) He is stress. He is stressful in certain situations, but no, I, uh, I marked her a couple uh, of quotes from Sarita to, as she ends her uh, stay on our screens here, like how she keeps always saying, like, I want to make sure you're on the program. I think she means like, stay, be with the, get with the program here, but she keeps saying on the program. And maybe it's confusing because she was always in the yurt. So you were on, I don't know. It's prepositions are hard. Um, <laughs> maybe she then, meant on yeah, survivor. Just, just ask Dan K. Maybe. Prepositions are hard. I, I was just going to say, is this, is this another Dan situation? <laughs> and, <laughs> the idol and then, is on the crater. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and then um, she talks about like about uh, what stuff about if David comes back, if he still is in the game, he's going to come back like hell on wheels for me. And Ooh. I thought that was a, an interesting um, mixture of some expressions there. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I've crapped enough on the season and the stretch of episodes like something going back to the very early days of survivor. We can, um, uh, talk about survivor Marquesas and stuff. There's fun. Like one of my favorite parts about a show like survivor is just the random people that come in that they come and go and no one makes a, a mention of, but then you can have jokes about these people with your friends or with your fellow podcasters. And so, um, I'm hopeful that with this uh, conversation we have and the five people listening to it, that, um, that there can be a little bit of love out there for the, the weird randomness that is Sarita. Yeah, you know, in general, I do think Zapatero is actually a pretty interesting tribe. Yeah. Now, admittedly, they're, yeah, they're low energy, but they're very similar to Galu back in Samoa, like uh, whatever, uh, Savai next season, Ozzy's tribe. Like, they're the losing tribe, but they actually have some interesting people. You just kind of have to look for it. The potential is off the charts, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, an end game stock with these people, because, like, I think there was a chance that if they had got, if they had somehow prevailed at this merge vote, maybe they scoop, scoop up Matt and Andrea, like... I think there's a chance that if they end up getting to like eight or nine, they're like, yeah, let's start turning on each other. Because again, like there was a lot of, of discomfort there. Like David clearly thought he was a bit better than his tribe mates. Stephanie outlines all the different pairings that were going on. Like there was more going on, I think, at Zapatera than Omotepe because Omotepe was so quite literally tribal and like, okay, Phillip's on the bottom. Things were a little less carved out despite the fact that it was a fairly straightforward for Sarita, even though Sarita was blindsided. She didn't bring her stuff. I mean, I yeah, guess she's, they... she's used to the yurt where you don't have stuff, I suppose. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about that. Imagine if the season went the other way and Zapatero wins the season. Can you imagine Sarita winning this season? Well, wait, Mike. Yes, I can. Mike, she didn't She didn't bring her stuff because she she's not real. There wasn't real exactly. stuff. Exactly. That's just something she was supposed to say. Like, yep. I am blindsided, execute order 537, <laughs> blindside, exe. I will no longer be inside the season. I will no longer be above Survivor <laughs> Redemption Island. I am no I longer have... on the program of Survivor. <laughs> I have I been now... voted. I have been voted over the island. <laughs> I will now go back under the yurt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah, pull out a Pixar phrase. That's not just losing. That's being deleted with style. Yep. Oh, my God. Well, that's I speaking mean, of like Jeff Probst's dick moment, right? Like he's really digging them in the dirt with Zapatero where Ralph's like, well, we almost won that challenge. And Jeff's like, David, finish this sentence for me. Excuses are for losers. Like 
Jeff, my God, like you're essentially writing off half the people in the game at this point. I ain't no loser. <laughs> no, I, no, I think he I does it probably. Well, I guess I'm a loser then. And that's what I do love about Ralph is like when someone comes at him with snark, he like says basically like, yep. That's it. Like, if someone said, like, yeah, you're stinky garbage, baby, like, yep, that's me, old trash boy. Mario, I'm going to agree with you when you said, though, about Redemption Island making every episode better, because we still get a little bit of Sarita in the next episode. I forgot she's not totally gone yet. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the most historic, iconic moments in Survivor history, Matt coming back from Redemption Island, completely forgot that he's up against fucking Sarita in that <laughs> Like, name, name, pull five million Survivor fans. Ask them who is in the final duel with Matt when he comes right. back. Not more than five of them would have said Serena. There is a chance that even I would not have gotten that one, and mm -hmm. you would have won a T-shirt. Um, speaking of the days of winning a T-shirt, I back in the day, I was on a podcast called The Tribe, and these are some of the first seasons we podcasted about. So every now and then I get like a little reminder of something, a joke or something we had from back then. It doesn't happen very often because it's been so long ago and this season is what it is. Uh, but uh, when Sarita's on XLI or on uh, Redemption Island um, and she's, you know, sharing the positive things about uh, Zavatera, I remember something we always talked about back then is she's talking about Mike and she says, uh, yeah, he's a total badass. And I remember that was like something that stuck for that season. We always talked about like, well, according to Sarita, Mike is a total badass. <laughs> okay, let's finish Sarita off so we can talk about the next one. So. Yeah, Jeff Probst is just digging into the Zapateras. You guys suck. You you threw a challenge. How dare you? Ralph, you're a loser. How? And he's just going off. And David actually makes a good point here, which I like. That's, people kind of probably forget this speech where David says, well, the thing is, Jeff, we don't really have a purpose anymore. We had a purpose mm -hmm. when it was us against Russell. That was a purpose, and we were great. Now we don't have a purpose. So we're kind of infighting. There's not really any passion. As I said earlier, they're just a low energy tribe. There's not really a leader. There's no passion. They're and I not understand having yeah, fun. Exactly. I understand his point. There's nothing for them. There's no incentive for them to really be winning right now. It just doesn't feel like it's it's their season. Anyway, they vote out Sarita. And despite the fact that it's been mentioned all episode, it's going to be David or Sarita. For some reason, Sarita is blindsided and didn't bring her stuff, which just adds to the legend of Sarita. <laughs> yeah, she left all her dirty sticks back at camp, so now someone else has to take care of them. <laughs> Sarita, where are your possessions? What are possessions? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we finished Sarita, but fear not, we have a little more, because now we're in the big episode. I'd argue the biggest episode of this. I mean, that's not even an argument. This is the biggest episode of the season. This, I would also argue, this episode alone makes Redemption Island much better than most people give it credit for. Because there's such, this is such a big, memorable, epic, badass storyline that most seasons would kill to have. That I think this episode alone, episode eight, makes this season not one of the worst seasons of all time. Yeah, so we basically get like, you know, the briefing, right? And it is a little bit of the calm before the storm because we're not officially going to get the merge here, but, like, we essentially get the setting as to what it would be. And as much as there's talk about, like, will David flip and emerge? Will fill up? It seems like we've shored up to pretty much be six on five, right? With one person in the middle, whoever's coming back. Even Philip, who, again, has been decrying for the past seven episodes of, like, Rob this, Rob that, I hate that Rob's the king, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's like, you know, I learned a lot from Rob. I think I'm going to stick with Omotepe for the time being. <laughs> 
Okay, I we'll will point out though, Mario, for as much as you're uh, pumping up this episode, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, what mm-hmm. is the title of this episode? Oh, I wrote it down. It's like you have to make big moves or something. This game respects big moves. Damn you, Jay Fisher. <laughs> Just you've saying. Made a, you've made a whore out of me, Jay Fisher. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, yeah. So to paint the picture, Matt Elrod, good old Matty Elrod, who was voted out rare, very early in the season for being too nice of a guy, has been on Redemption Island, and he's been suffering out there, and he's been toiling and the elements have been horrible, and he's lonely, and the only thing that gets him through is his faith in God. And he talks about this endlessly. We've kind of been skipping over it. All his confessionals about how God has a plan for him. God must have me out here for a reason. I have a bigger purpose. He got Krista's Bible. God and faith has brought him to this moment where if he wins one more duel, he has overcome all this, these obstacles and will make it back into the game. And I will say personally, as a plug— this is maybe my favorite funny 115 entry I have ever written, the tale, the sad tale of Matt Elrod. <laughs> but it, and let's just say it's not going to go well for him, and God is going to play a very cruel joke on our poor little devout friend here. Yeah, suffice it to say, if, if you're following a book where God in a lot of stories ends up like punishing or mocking or manipulating a lot of the people that are underneath him, that unfortunately Matt is going to be one of those Job-like figures. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, and I cannot—again, You, if you were there at the time and you followed the message board, you listened to the podcast, oh, my God, was this episode big. Now, does that track with your guys' memories as well, this whole Matt moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly was big for a number of reasons. First, like Rob expresses, like, there's a lot of apprehension going in here of— Yes, it's six versus five, but, like, there's a chance that Matt could get brought over, and then if Matt comes, then Andrea comes with. So I think a lot of speculation ends up playing out in this episode. But just the revolving door aspect. I know, Paul, you were not entirely happy with Julie's uh, probably attitude next episode, right, of, like, how cold-blooded that is. But, like, it's not too dissimilar with what people were thinking, right, of, like, this dude spent much like three times more time in the game on Redemption Island than he did actually playing Survivor. And now he gets sent out right on his ass. Like, it's rough. It's not exactly on the level of, like, you know, a Reichenbach type of thing. But, like, I would say it's certainly on that spectrum of just, like, a really rough thing to do to somebody. And I, I mean, I think that speaks to what Mario's saying. I think this episode alone keeps the season out of, you know, the the few worst seasons out there because of something that's so brutal but so, like perfect for the game of survivor when things like that really happen and and it's not just this one isolated incident of oh man you got blindsided because your allies turned on you from one episode before no we spent how many weeks getting to this point and know the whole backstory to make that blindside and i think you know when blindsides really became something that the fans look forward to the the earlier we go back to i would even include this season in that era like the blind sides meant more than what i think a modern era of survivor you know does with these is because there's there's a story behind it and we really know how they got there and so this kind of betrayal of him is 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 legendary yeah and this does fall into what i mentioned earlier that the argument that redemption island makes a season better from a storytelling point of view and I'd argue there's two two aspects to that. Redemption Island adds storylines that have a chance to fester and fester and fester and build up momentum to where they have a payoff later. But the other thing with the Redemption Island seasons is they don't have a twist. 
And I don't know if people know actually notice that if you pay attention to that. There's never a tribe swap in this in Redemption Island or South Pacific. So nobody ever switches tribes, which can be boring to the viewers. But from a storytelling point of view, it allows narratives to go five, six, seven, eight episodes in a row before having a payoff, which to me, I think is very dramatic. And this Matt Elrod one is, you know, exhibit A and how Redemption Island really makes this season more epic than it really has any right to be. Now, there is a secret scene that we're missing out on here because we do find out, of course, the morning of the big duel, Matt has a pretty nasty, deep cut on the outside of his foot. I believe if you check the uh, CBS YouTube page, you'll see a scene where Sarita gets up out of the shelter that night and plants a big, dirty stick right on the ground <laughs> from where Matt usually goes to the bathroom. And mm. it turns out that's what caused the cut. She cleans the wound with the dirty stick. And some bacteria got in there then, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sarita, she's cunning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so here's the infamous episode. Again, I could not love this episode more. Funny isn't really the right word to describe it. I don't know enough words in the English language to know how to describe this episode other than it's tragic and memorable and it's, I guess, hubris is in there. No, I, I mean, sure I, think, I think tragic is a way to put it. Like, I think it's just, it's because it's not even hubris from like Matt's perspective because again, I still feel like he's an underdog coming mm -hmm. into this episode. I think it truly is like a tragedy. It's this idea of this hero coming in trying to create a new narrative for himself and then like unfortunately due to circumstances both in and out of his control completely succumbing to a fate once more yeah but i i agree with you but tragedy is too simplistic a word because it's also funny that's the thing you, you can't ignore that that this whole thing is boston rob's like i gotta get rid of this guy he's too fucking nice get off of my tribe i don't want you here and Matt overcomes all these obstacles, all this suffering, proves to God that he's worthy. He comes back and he's like, you know what, Rob? I'm so nice. I don't want to turn against you. And Rob's like, you're still too fucking nice. Fuck you again. And votes him out. Like, that's still funny. And I don't know the right word for that. I don't know. Okay, let's, get, let's delve into this. So we're going to spend a while on this. Uh, so Sarita arrives at Redemption Island at the start of the episode. And she gets there. And, and Matt's first instinct is... Oh, good, because I can beat her. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. He has no respect for Sarita. Mm, that's why I don't like this season. No respect. <laughs> oh, should, should then, Sarita have been on the second chances ballot instead of Stephanie? <laughs> yes, she definitely would have made it in over her. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so Sarita gets there, and unlike everybody else, everybody else has come to Redemption Island and just shit on the Zapateras, saying they're the worst people ever, they're terrible. Sarita even though she has just been blindsided, said, oh, these people are the salt of the earth, Matt. I love them all. If you get back in the game, join up with Julie and Steve and Ralph and Mike. Mike is a badass, as Paul wanted to say. And then she says, also, David is Hitler. So don't, avoid it. don't <laughs> join God. up with him. <laughs> no, she doesn't uh, say that. A very accurate paraphrase there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she's the only person to really build up the Zapateras as being wonderful people. So... Again, Matt has only heard bad things about the Zapateras up to this point in the game. Sarita's the first person to really perhaps put a different picture in his head. And I just wanted to point that out, that it's possible she fucks with him a little bit here unintentionally. Yeah, I don't know, because we'll see eventually, right? Like, 
there is a, a story of like what happens to Matt and like the journey that Matt undergoes in the episode itself. And that latter is really, is, you know, really supported by this idea of Matt decides to flip. But I think like the more time he spends with Ometepe and the time he spends reconnecting, the more he realizes that he doesn't want to do that. So I at least see the intention of what Sarita is trying to do. But I, I do think it's something interesting to clock that despite the glowing recommendation from Sarita, Matt does not go through with the flip here. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. Now we go to the duel. Matt has won, I think, what, five in a row. This is the big sixth one, and it's a big moment, and this is a big moment in Survivor history. Remember, this had never happened before. This is a Survivor first. No one knew how Redemption Island was going to play out, when the player was going to come back. This episode, episode eight, both tribes send everybody to the Redemption Arena. They uh, correctly deduce they're going to merge after this one. Whoever wins this duel comes back in the game. Huge. I cannot understate how huge this moment is. Featuring Matt and Sarita to answer your trivia question that will win you money one day. Sarita is up who he's up against. And at like Mike said, Matt is injured. He has injured his foot. Sarita has cleaned it with a stick and inserted bacteria into it somehow. So Matt has a bad foot. He's got a, ba a bandage all over his foot. It's infected. And he says, man, I really hope this isn't one of those challenges where I have to use my feet. And lo and behold, it's a challenge where you have to use your feet. It's the Coach Wade Memorial Challenge where you stand up on these little tiny wooden blocks and support yourself until your back and your legs give out. The only funnier, funnier thing uh, here would have been if they had the the rip the meat off the hook challenge, um, you know, just so Sarita would have to use her. Uh, that that would have been fair. You know, if if for Matt's foot, they would have had to, you know, stand on those structures and then also rip off meat with their teeth just to kind of oh. balance out the injuries here. Yeah, yeah. Or you'd be praying for oral herpes at that point. <laughs> well, she's an uptown girl. If there'd been a meat tearing challenge, she would have pulled out like a little salad fork and a dainty little knife. It would have been very slow. Excuse me. Are these the canapes or when is the first course coming out? <laughs> This is no yurt I'm used to. I am Sarita. I would like a tenderloin. <laughs> Could I get a side of Doritos with that, please? And a yes, margarita. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah, margarita that's happening. Oh, my God. It took me 15 that's minutes to think, like, all right, what can, what can I do with Sarita? Margarita, perhaps? Yeah. I was searching for the margarita. You beat me to it. Damn you. You guys are quick today. Okay, so here it we go. It wasn't that this quick, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, but Jay, we haven't I done didn't this in a while. I hear you say it, Jay, yeah. okay? Well, I'm an idiot, so, you know, I'll take that into, into account. It's all right, well, Jay. You can be a moron with me. <laughs> Did you hear me and Mike going for the... We were going for the exact same Ralph impression at the exact same time. That was impressive. Oh, boy. I'm pretty sure we broke the universe now. <laughs> I think we did. We're stupid. God, this 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 okay. double Hamsar coming at me is something else. <laughs> Could it be worse than the Rest double Adam Gentrys? <laughs> <laughs> Do it, bro. <laughs> okay, so we're in the big duel, and one of these little fun editing moments I love, where Matt and Sarita are up there uh, perching and on these little tiny footholds, and and what is it? Uh, Probe says. Hey, Philip, would you like to comment on this? And Philip says, yeah, this uh, reminds me of the Bushudo Code, the life of the samurai. And we just get this long extended montage of Philip explaining every little aspect of a samurai's life. As it's like the whole Becky and Sundra doing the fire where we, we fade out and then fade back in and Philip's still talking and we'll fade out and fade back in. And Philip's like, 
And on the sixth day, the prosciutto co, they would eat rice, and rice can be very sticky, and, and they'd want to break down the grain with some kind of a long soak, Jeff. <laughs> anyway, I just love this all throughout this really, really pivotal moment in Survivor history that we get the editors clowning on Philip by, by pointing out how long he talks. I'm also fairly sure at one point when we catch him in middle of conversation, he's talking about Harry Carey. Like he's saying like, and then mm -hmm. they, ta they take the sword and they carve it across their chest of like, Philip really goes very far into this. It's a very graphic territory for just a 15 minute period. <laughs> well, yeah, it, but I mean, if you're going to get technical with Bushido code, like seppuku is like a big tenant of it. So if he is going on a long tirade, mm -hmm. it kind of has to be mentioned. I'm just going to point that out there. Right. Jay is a history teacher, I should point out to people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I know we're not going to call BS. You're right. Jay is correct, of course. I mean, I mean, the, the larger question is, why is he going off on this tangent? Why is this challenge remind him of the Bushido code? But like, if he's going to talk about it forever with the, with the fun montage or the, the fun time lapse that we do get from there, I mean, he is going to probably talk about Sepku a little bit. I mean, it's just what it is. All right, so the duel progresses, and Sarita is looking all zen. And I swear to God, it looks like Sarita's going to win. <laughs> Imagine if it changes Survivor history if Sarita wins this challenge. But in the end, she does not. She falls, and Matt wins. And again, cannot be said enough that this is one of the biggest moments in Survivor history, especially up to that point, season 22. I mean, this is a huge, huge moment. Matt wins this duel. Matt's coming back in the game. Goodbye, Sarita. Sad to see you go. And Jeff Probe says, six duels, six wins in a row. Matt, you are back in the game, and we are merged. And with that, how, how fortunate, though, in a lot of ways, right? In, in the sense that what if, what if this season with the incoming, like, Redemption Island had, like, you know, maybe Matt was there, you know, because he gets voted out first, and then, you know, he, he wins his first duel, but then loses, and then the next person comes in, and they beat that person, and, like, it's this weird back and forth all the way through. Mm -hmm. that isn't as compelling, right? Yeah. Are mm -hmm. you? It would be so compelling if we would have had the muncher Krista <laughs> up against the yurt-dwelling Sarita. <laughs> it's not necessarily the people, but just the the, the keeping on of, of the changing. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, you know, when Sue gives the snakes and rats speech at the end of the first Survivor. Like, Survivor already has the attention of basically the world at that point. And then Sue hits that speech and everyone just goes, Oh money, this is money. Right. And it's like, they have something, they have this formula. Right. And it's like, not that redemption Island is like the rebirth of survivor, but like you said, I think that if, if redemption Island just fizzles and is just kind of like, Oh, we're trading things. And then, you know, Sarita or Krista or someone comes back in the game and it's just non impactful. And in some way, and we don't get this, this massive, like Matt Elrod train going into, and then, overcoming and in, in going back in the game and then immediately getting voted out like this is um this is the, this is the thing that keeps redemption island going right. you did not seem that excited about my krista versus sarita scenario <laughs> whoever wins I mean, we lose uh in that way <laughs> a muncher against an artificial intelligence person like uh okay well i will say that yeah i think that all three seasons that have redemption island on them i think Either due to circumstance or, like, luck, I think they're three for three in terms of pre-merge returnee. Like, I think between Matt, between Ozzy, and Ozzy's situation, actually, Jay, to sort of, like, the thing that you were just talking about, right? Where, like, this would be theoretically if, from a position perspective, Sarita ends up beating Matt. It just so happens that the Sarita in this case is, like, 
Ozzy, who has this returning player thing, leader of his tribe, does the whole, you know, uh, purposely falling on his sword to do the best acting job stuff. Even like Laura Moret to a certain extent, right, in Blood vs. Water because of the betrayal that she had and like the amount of time that she spent on there. That's when the Redemption Island narrative works best, arguably when it's its least competitive, which I think is really interesting compared to mm -hmm. probably like how the twist was meant to be made. Right. Yeah. And to follow up on what Jay said, I think they got really lucky with yeah. this Redemption Island. But this is the ideal storyline. This is the absolute perfect. You're, if you're laying out Redemption Island as a fictional story device, this is how it should go. And so, yeah, if, if it had been anybody else, it, it doesn't even matter the name. If it's just person changing every other episode, it's just not compelling. So they got so fortunate with Matt. And I'm not arguing anything was rigged. I think it was probably completely legit. It all looks completely legit to me. He just is really good. But they got so lucky that Matt validated this concept. They got even luckier the next season when Ozzy weaponizes the concept that like the, the producers could have had absolute shit on their hands. And I know a lot of fans will be listening to this and yelling at me because they're like, Redemption Island and South Pacific suck. That is the common wisdom. I don't happen to think they both suck. I, again, South Pacific, I happen to think is almost a masterpiece, just in a different way. But they could have gotten so much more unlucky if any other storyline had played out. So the producers got really lucky this worked out the way that it did. And with that, we uh, get mad. But more importantly, we lose Sarita. So I'll give Paul one last chance to eulogize Sarita because she's just kind of tossed aside here in the in the hubbub over Matt. Anything else we got to say about her? You know, I think I think we have done the impossible here and said many, 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 many minutes about Sarita. And I don't think I have another comment because <laughs> at the point when we are in a hypothetical situation, a Sarita Tina blend ordering margaritas and Doritos in a yurt, I think we've maxed out. I had my fun with Sarita, but it's time to move on. She's back to the James Clement lifestyle of digging graves and burying people. Or just becomes the ones and zeros she was in the first place. <laughs> yes. I really hope Sarita listens to this one day. We, <laughs> we have become fans of yours. You may have noticed 15, 20 minutes ago, I said, who the hell is Sarita? I don't remember her even being on the season. Now I am a Sarita fan, thanks to Paul and Mike and Jay and their excellent work. So <laughs> hopefully Sarita hears this one day. Sarita gets to join that fun room of, of people like, you know, the Zoe's there and Butch is there. You know, it, it, it's a it's a great room. You make, it's it sound like it's, you make it sound like it's heaven of just like, welcome to your purgatorial state now, formerly forgotten Survivor contestant. You've been acknowledged by this podcast of four white men talking about the show you were on once upon a time decades ago. You've been invited into the Sanctum Sanctorum, the Inner Hollows. Damn, I think I got roasted in there. <laughs> well, you weren't aware you were white? Did Mike have to point that out? Yikes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love the awkward. Just in, for our listeners, I love those moments. Okay, anyway. So anyway, uh, so Matt is voted back, or not voted, but he returns back into the game, and, and Jeff Probst says, you're all merged, and everybody hugs, and, and this is where Jeff utters the dread announcement. Oh, by the way, there's another twist. Redemption Island is back in play. That means, Matt, you know, you could be voted right back out of the game and you could be coming back here. 
And Matt just kind of laughs and says, please, please, guys, give me a minute, which is not going to be quite so funny. <laughs> beautiful. <in> a <laughs> beautiful. One minute. Exactly. OK, one, two, three. All right, Matt. It's a very much the child thing of like, can you give me a second? Sure. One. And then sends them. I will say, though, this has always been my bone to pick with the Redemption Island stuff. And I could sort of excuse it in this season because, and Jeff has talked about this with something like Edge of Extinction, which I like even less than Redemption Island. Uh, this idea of, well, if it's a titular twist from like an island perspective, you usually want to have it carry over close to or into the finale so that it feels like, okay, this is why this season was themed around this. But for me, post-merge Redemption Island is almost always less appealing than pre-merge Redemption Island. I guess maybe the exception is what Ozzy does in South Pacific, right? The whole love shack and Sophie talks about how he's essentially able to, like, basically build up an entire jury that's able to vote for him if he makes it to the end. But, yeah, I always think this is a twist, just like with EOE. Like, any returnee twist should do what the Outcast did and just end at the merge. Yeah, 100% agree. There's no point for it to be happening again after the merge. I will admittedly, with the asterisk being, as much as I find it hilarious what happens to Matt. <laughs> okay, uh, anybody else disagree with that? I think that's a very common uh, sentiment among most Survivor fans, that Redemption Island, people aren't really a fan of it, but it's a necessary evil. I mean, if it is a necessary evil, they can deal with it up to the merge. But after the merge, it becomes really stupid, especially when there's like truels, duels with more than two people. I think that seems to be a common uh, common wisdom among most fans. Well, I think you can you can bounce with the fact that in this season they end Redemption Island or bring somebody back like a, an ultimate sort of winner from Redemption Island at the merge, and then they're like, "Well, we're going to do it again up until you know, kind of like right near the end." So it's like even Survivor acknowledges that ending this Redemption Island twist at the merge is a really good spot to end. Mm -hmm. redemption island right but then but then as mike said hey we got to keep this going and bring it all the way near the finale and all that sort of stuff and it just it seems tacked on at that point yeah and to be fair it was their first time doing it so they're ironing out the kink so i'll, I'll give them a little slack on this season okay so matt comes back into the game now there's 12 people back in the game which is basically six omatepes five zapateras and matt right in the middle very important and uh, first, we have to pick the new Merge Tribe name. Which... But before we pick the name, this is where we get the quote from how Julie's whole body got happy, like a kid <laughs> at a carnival. <laughs> so mm. now that Sarita's gone, now Julie, you're going to focus on Julie again? Well, I mean, I, I flip-flop on her a lot. There's times that she annoys the shit out of me, but uh, this is a quote that I found kind of funny slash disturbing as she's telling this. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then it switches to discussion of what we're going to name the tribe name. I, I am sad that I thought it was in the show, but at least not in the version that I saw. The infamous Steve quote of like, oh, we had a merge today, which was an interesting development in the game, didn't make the final cut, which makes me very sad because it is one of the oddest Steve Wright moments. And to your point, Mario speaks to like how enigmatic he is that you said there's no twists. According to Steve Wright, the merge is one of the biggest twists in Survivor history. <laughs> I've never heard that quote. That must I, I didn't see that. I, 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 did you see that on a secret scene or something? Yeah, I think it was back in the day right, when they used to do like those those unedited confessionals. I'm pretty sure there was one from Steve Wright that was just like, wow, an interesting development in the game. We had a merge today. <laughs> wow, at the end, we vote for a winner. What a fascinating twist. 
Okay, so we're going to get to the new Merge Tribe, which is uh, <laughs> very famous moment where Rob is going to convince everyone to name the new tribe Merlonio, or Merlonio, however you pronounce that, depending on how you ask Philip. And he says it means from the sea united. But it does not mean that. It's actually an inside joke he got from Amber that a lot of people don't know this, but Merlonio is actually Spanish for, oh my God, they have peanut butter. It's so good. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it's they have a Amber apparently has a bunch of stuffed animals and her animals have a leader and the leader of the stuffed animals is named Merlonio, which is adorable. I have to say, even by Boston Rob stand, standards, I got to say that's very cute. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, what we were just talking about with the idol clues stuff, right? It's like making television for us and also keeping himself entertained. Uh, and again, like he was playing a, a game that was like, fairly negative fairly personal i would say again in that us versus them mentality so like if you want to keep things a bit lighter and troll everybody and convince them do what eric reichenbach did but only worse by coming up with the weirdest whoopee named ever and trying to actually pass that off as a tribe name and it's very evocative to me again of like the general dynamics right boss and rob's like we're gonna do it this way it's merlone and everyone's like yeah sure that sounds legitimate we're not gonna question it somehow merlonio great we're merlonio now <laughs> But I think also it's this it's this thing where, you know, I know that sometimes on the show we're like, oh, they don't do, you know, um, they don't do, you know, rites of passage and, you know, all these sorts of things that Survivor used to do. And, you know, we we, we can talk about all that to the to the cows come home. But like it was, you know, in the old seasons of Survivor, it was a big thing to like when they merged, like pick a name and make the flag. And, you know, it was, you know, not not that it was like important to the game and outcome of survivor but it was just one of those tradition things that everyone sort of got into and it's like now all these seasons in it's just a thing right and it's mm -hmm. it's 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 not just oh boston rob you know made the tribe name based on a stuffed animal of amber's it's like they don't care right rob's like merlonio it's from the sea and you know no one's fact checking but no one really cares <laughs> they're like it sounds fine put it on the flag who cares right like it's not this is not a thing that that people are treasuring anymore. It's just another thing that happens, right? Which is why like dang rain comes and you know mm. stuff like that. It's just, you know, someone's like, "Oh, we have to have a merged tribe name. How about this dumb name?" And everyone's like, "Yeah, that dumb name's fine. Put it on the flag. I don't want to put any effort into this." <laughs> yeah, a lot of people hate that tribe name. I've never had a problem with it. Like Jay said, it's just what happens on Survivor. It's just this silly little thing in the middle of the season. My only regret is they did not have Ralph spell it on the flag. <laughs> how many how many Q's in Merlonio? <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to see Ralph's attempt, yeah, at that word. And so unfortunately, a, a small bit of comedy missed. How how can you paint on the flag, Hamsar? You don't have arms. But like uh it, it that that's the whole thing. I don't want to sit here and say like, oh, old man yells at cloud, like, oh, they don't take respect in naming the tribe names. Like, honestly, I don't it doesn't affect me one way or the other, but it's just like at this point, if we're naming the tribe names after, you know, stuffed animals and trying to pass it off, like this is not a thing we need to really care about anymore. Like, well, why do we have tribe names anymore? Just, you know, they're the, they're the color of the buff they have now, you know? I also love the fact, though, that it's a nice callback to Rob's very first season, right? The first merch Shabby P was a part of was Solion 2, which was a made-up word. So now he's doing it, but just like digging the knife in even more that like it doesn't even sound you know, culturally authentic. It's just an inside joke between him and his wife, who he met on the show several years prior. Yep. Mm -hmm. I do have a question, though, for Paul. If you named a tribe after the leader of your stuffed animals, which one would it be? 
Oh, I was not ready for this question. You better damn well get ready for it. It probably would be Sarita. <laughs> How odd would that be if, if they named the tribe Sarita? Or if I had a step or if I or if I had a stuffed animal. I remember this aired when I was a uh, uh, 20 tw- slash 21 and was studying abroad in Germany. And I just had a leader of my stuffed animals named Sarita. No, Dorito. Dorito. It's a Sarita the Cheetah. That, that's something that I would. Sarita I, the Cheetah. That's something yes. that I would, I would try to do, like, for real if I were ever on Survivor, because I actually think that would be kind of funny. I like the jokes where it's like the literal. In the sense of like, what should we name our merged tribe name? Name it merged tribe. <laughs> oh well, Jay, you'd love a certain season of Australian Survivor where they name the merged tribe Fire Tribe. Nice. <laughs> I I would want to name it, you know, I would want to name it the German word for a sleigh ride because everyone's, you know, on this adventure together and it's it can be icy and cold and it just would be a beautiful name because we would name the tribe Schlittenfart. <laughs> See, that's that's the thing though. Like the Germanic languages, right? Like you're able to represent an entire phrase within one word. And then but the people wouldn't believe me. They'd be like, that is he's lying, that is not I go, no, it's Schlittenfart. It really is. I I play a a, a long time computer game that I play uh you know, and because I hate myself is Dota two. And whenever the big uh, tournament of the year comes up, they usually have like a little battle pass with like, you know, stuff you can buy in there. But a lot of the personalities, people who cast the game uh, and interviewers and, and those sorts of uh, people, they have like for the past year or two, they've had like these voice lines that you can buy for some sort of money where, you know, and, and some of the money goes to valve obviously. And some of the money goes to them, uh, for coming up with it. And, you know, they, they've got like fun little catchphrases that they say, or they're trying to say something funny or something. So like when you're playing the game and you've bought their little sound, you can sort of spam it at people and they have to listen to it. But one guy literally last year, his, his, his voice line was voice chat wheel line. And I thought that was the funniest shit ever. And like, I just, I'm like, you know, merge tribe name, Merlonia, just merge tribe. No, I thought of one a better tribe. one. The, the German word for torch. Anyone know it? You know, since it's actually fitting no, for the Survivor absolutely Torch. absolutely not. You're the German teacher. Why would we know that? <clears throat> Fuckle. Ooh. Come on I'm in, Fuckle. I'm a fan. I'm so no, okay. Fan. We're the Fuckle tribe. <laughs> now, it's killing me. There, There is no Survivor Germany, is there? I know most countries have their own. There Germany. was. They've tried. It's tried a couple times, and it just did not catch on. Now I'm just imagining con- D- Dieter from Sprockets playing Survivor. I'm just picturing all the confessionals being people screaming and sounding angry. Like, <laughs> I have made the tribe. I'm on shit and fart. <laughs> I remember when I, um, um, I, when I got really into uh, uh, learning German, like even when I was like in middle school, high school and stuff. And I went on this thing where I, I wanted to label everything in my room um, in German. And so, yeah, I was destined to be a German teacher, clearly. And one of the things I had was like this, I always call it my immunity idol because it was like from Pier 1. It was some like African sculpture thing. And so I remember I labeled it and then like the, you know, the technical definition for an immunity idol was a like um, what an immunitätsgutzenbild or something like that. It was like this huge long thing, and I always thought it'd be funny if that was what they called it on the on the German Survivor. Now I just want German Survivor Julie to be like, "Oh yes, I felt when it merged. It was like a carnival. I was on my own shits and fart, and I was just along for the ride." 
Everything inside of me was so happy. And I was like, you do you. What are you wearing? It's so wonderful. I want to make the merge so I can make it to fuckle. <laughs> it is fuckle time. No one snuffs my fuckle tonight. <laughs> you don't belong on fuckle. All right. <laughs> so I turned into Schwarzenegger there. <laughs> sorry, sorry to all our German listeners. Okay. So we, anyway, where the, where the hell are we? In the, I'm looking at my notes here. We did Merlonio. So Merlonia. Okay. So the whole rest of this episode is Matt has now returned to the game and there's a lot of fine points and little, you know, intricate details I'm going to skip over, but it's basically, will Matt join with the Ometepes again, or will he go with the Zapateras and turn against his old tribe? It's all about him talking with Andrea. It's all about uh, Mike. Remember the one person Sarita said he is a badass. Go team up with Mike. Mike is pulling Matt aside saying, please come with us. I will give you my word as a man of honor to come with us and, you know, I will, I'll take you to the final four. So Matt is caught in the middle. He doesn't know what to do. He starts praying to God, God, what should I do? What is my path here? Should I turn on the people that turn on me? Should I stick with them? Matt is very conflicted. And all throughout this episode, we will hear him say he's going to turn on Rob or he's not going to turn on Rob. He tells Andrea at one point he's going to, he's all over the place. And the problem is, Rob is going to decide, I'm not going to leave it up to Matt. I'm going to decide for him. <laughs> yeah, it's like Matt says, oh, yeah, do I want this or do I want this for lunch? And Rob's like, well, if you can't decide, I'm just going to burn all the stores down. All the restaurants are done now. You don't get to eat in general. Uh, I mean, it's, it is such the, the most fascinating dynamic about this entire season, in my opinion. Because, like, this is also Survivor in a nutshell, right? It's bringing in your own outside morals and rules and thoughts about how society should work into a game where, as Jeff Probst likes to put every season, you are trying to create your own society. And so Matt has these conflicting emotions of, like, for days and weeks he has been ruminating about finally getting back into the game, but, like, now that he has done it, does he really want it? He's the dog that's been chasing the car, but now that he finally caught up, what is he going to do now? And I do think it's interesting that, like, Matt ultimately folds here, right? Despite the fact that he is receiving these offers from Mike and they have the good word from Sarita and also, you know, he has that built-in past, he is going to fundamentally look inside of himself, his gut that has guided him this entire way and assumingly his entire life. And for whatever reason, they say, no, 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 stick with the status quo. It's totally fine. Whereas, again, Rob is going to hear this and just completely be four moves ahead of him, right? Being like, I don't care if he's flipping or not. I'm going to make sure that it doesn't matter either way. Right. And I think that that's a, you know, it's a lesson from other Rob, Sesternino, in the sense that I think that a lot of people look at Sesternino's game in Survivor Amazon and basically say the, hey, if you're not totally in the majority, find people on the bottom and, you know, create a new alliance and flip things. But really what Rob was saying with all of that is don't leave, don't leave a, like a one person that isn't yourself to decide between your fate or someone else's fate, right? Like if there is someone who is, you know, a, the deciding vote, the, the, you know, the, the entire crux of, of the decision between one fate or another fate, change it somehow. Right. And that's sort of what Rob does here. He's just like, Oh, cause you know, Zapatera's wooing Matt and Ometepe's like, no, Matt, no, please don't vote with Zapatera. And then Rob's like, you know, we don't need Matt. We can just do this ourselves. Yeah, this is very uh, similar to, if you remember, the Christie situation in Amazon, 
or the Dolly situation in Vanuatu. Yep. If you are the swing vote in the middle, don't make it obvious because they can just shoot the hostage in the word of uh, in the words of the movie speed, shoot the hostage. And there's one particular scene here where Mike is sitting with Matt and I believe Ashley and they're bonding over the Bible. They're all reading the Bible together. And Rob is just sitting in the back laughing at them like, are you kidding me? You guys are sitting there bonding over the Bible of all things. And Rob's like, you know, I got no problem with religion. I go to church, you know, but anytime anybody's bonding in this game, I don't care what it's about. It could be about romantic comedies. It could be about Oreo cookies. I don't care. I don't like that you have shared interest. I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to break that up. Yeah. I mean, it's very like bare bones basics. That's the thing about like, it's a very basic game, but it's almost like complex in its, its base remarks and that like, Rob, again, is putting forward this very tribal us versus them mentality of keep them separated, stop them from talking, because when they start talking, that's when they start bonding. When they start bonding, that's when they start strategizing. When they start strategizing, that's not good for my game. And so he immediately helps go for that as well. That, yeah, I think Matt is so entirely visible to, you know, everybody else with the way he's talking to Zapatera. Now, the issue is... The more that Zapatera perceives that Matt is starting to pull away, the more visible they get with their strategizing, right? With making the pulls to Matt after the challenge to try to talk with him. And so it's almost like a prophecy that's feeding itself that Rob is seeing Matt getting in tight with Zapatera. So he's going to talk to Matt. Matt's going to become more paranoid, which makes Zapatera want to talk to him more, which then feeds Rob's opinion more that he's talking with Zapatera. Yeah, there's one funny little moment I remember here where (laughs) just a silly little moment. I just catch these little things where Mike is reading the Bible and Matt's like, hey, what are you reading? And and Mike's like, it's the book of Matthew, the story of Matthew. And Matt just kind of under his breath goes, yeah, which (laughs) so excited about the book of Matthew. I just love that little moment. Okay, yeah. So like you said, it's just a big paranoia circle. And Matt is really saying all the wrong things, hanging out with the wrong people. And in Matt's defense, by the end of the episode, he will decide not to turn on Ometepe. He's not going to do it. His God, he says, you know, God wants me to, you know, be here to do this for a reason, to be on Ometepe. My moral code will not allow me to turn on Rob to vote against them. So Matt has decided not to vote against his friends, but they're still going to vote for him anyway, which is is the part of this that makes it so incredibly tragic when it happens. All right, with that, let's get to the Episode 8 Immunity Challenge. This is the first individual one of the game where they uh, perch on a log and they have to balance balls on a disc. Again, we've seen this in dozens of other Survivor seasons since then. Yeah, I was was trying to remember, was this the first time that we've seen this? Uh, Because it also brings in a big thing that was very popular amongst the internet community, amongst the 20s of Survivor, Jeff Probst's ball jokes. (laughs) Yeah, the, the the ball jokes came later for sure. This might be the first instance of this challenge. This is really a Paul question that, uh, for lack of a better term, Paul is dropping the ball on his trivia knowledge here. Is this the first time? I think so. I, I, I In my scan of my brain, I can't think of this, this one coming up before. Jeff Probst's ball moment, folks. <laughs> but I always remember Mike winning this challenge, but that's actually not correct. Like, Mike dominates this challenge. He never moves. Then at one point, there's a fly that lands on his ball. Anyway, if you haven't seen it in a while, it's a balancing challenge, and, and Mike just dominates it, but then he chokes at the end, and Natalie, of all people, wins this challenge. And with that, that that's going to set the stage for the tragedy here. So 
Natalie is immune going into tribal council. And uh, it looks like Mike might be the big target for the Ometepes. But this is where, I don't know, it's really complicated. I'm trying not to complicate it for you because the plan is going to change like four different times. But at the end of the day, Mike is going to get pass a note to Matt, say, please join the Zapateras. <laughs> This will get you the final three. I, I, know, I, for, I forgot about I the note. I forgot about this entirely. Yeah. XOXO like BFS. No, yeah. maybe. Well, I mean, what does it say here? Dear Russell, there's a chance. Oh, wait, sorry. That's a leftover from a couple seasons ago. Yeah. Watch out for Rob. He looks strong. Meet up with me at the merge. XOXO BFFs. Yeah. So Mike passes a note to Matt. Matt reads it. Matt decides to pass him up on the offer. Matt is going to stick with the Ometepes. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the night, Rob is like, you know what? Oh, no, no. Yeah. Matt says, I came up with a plan, Rob. He goes to Rob and he says he admits everything. He's like, I, I had a plan to vote you out, Rob. And I was going to go with the Zapateras and we were all going to do it. And then I was going to and and then I, I decided not to do it. God told me not to do it. And, and And Rob, rather than being thankful, gets pissed. And Rob is like, look at this idiot kid, this Matt kid. He had the audacity to come up with a plan against me, and then the stupidity to tell me about it. What a fucking idiot. <laughs> He's like, I got to vote him out of here now. I can't trust him. He's too squirrely. I mean, yeah. I mean, Matt <laughs> came to him and was like, essentially pulled an O.J. Simpson, like, hey, if I did it, this is what I would have done. And Rob's like, there's a good chance if I just give you a couple more days, you're going to do exactly what you said. <laughs> Why the hell would I want to keep you in the game at this moment? I was stunned when Matt tells him to his face, it would have been such a great plan. I had it all <laughs> figured out. Oh, man, I was going to vote you off so good. I'm not going to anymore, pinky swear. But, man, yeah. it would have been great. You wouldn't have seen it coming. <laughs> well, and the, and, the, and, the, and the big tragedy about it is is that they could have done it, and they could have done it so easily, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like this is some, like, this has to break this way or this has to go this way. Like, when he's describing this to Rob, like, not only is Rob pissed about the, you know, the, the audacity and the gall and, you know, the idiocy of him telling him, but it's just also like, oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah, that would have yeah. done it. That would have <laughs> really done it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and Matt even frames it. He's like, I, I wanted to do it. I could have done it, but God wouldn't let me. God told me not to do it. I have to be a moral person. And lost in all of this, a lot of people just remember Matt comes back and Rob just blindsides him. But Matt is not blameless in this whatsoever. Matt fucks up so badly that it's, it's just it's horrifying to just watch this. It's like watching a car crash in slow motion. You know this is not going to work out well. Matt is trying his best to explain this in a way that he thinks Rob will admire. And all Rob takes from it is, I'm going to send this kid back to Redemption Island. <laughs> well, not only that, like you talk about him sicking his own game, but then Andrea comes up and Matt's like, Good news, Andrea. I told him everything about how we were going to blindside him about to flip on the tribe. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he throws Andrea under the bus, too. So Matt Elrod may be the single worst Survivor player ever. I hate to say that. Seems like a nice guy. Got clowned on Survivor. Got clowned so bad he had to change his name. I don't know if people realize he doesn't go by uh, Matt Elrod anymore, so I feel bad for him. Not too bad that I didn't write a whole entry making fun of him, but yeah, he may be the worst Survivor player of all time. He's too naive. He's too nice. Rob says specifically this guy might be the most, or no, Matt says I might be the most naive player of all time later, but yeah, it's just going to go all downhill from here and now. <laughs> Rob has decided Matt has to go right back to Redemption Island. He goes and tells all his troops, and I love all their reactions. They all have varying reactions to, oh, shit, we're going to do this to Matt again, aren't we? 
Yeah, I think that it, it's been very... It was a really fun sequence to have Matt sitting there at the camp, kind of like stewing awkwardly with the Zapateras while Rob is hustling, from our perspective, right? Running around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the epicness, right? When talking with Survivor players... Oftentimes they they get bought in on moves because like they love the energy that comes behind making a big move that changes the game. And I gotta say, I love the way Rob approaches Natalie here, where he says, This is a turning point in the game. You know what's going down. Can you figure it out? Like the mm-hmm. the way he's approaching it with this idea of we're gonna do something really fun and really cool, and yeah, a little cold hearted, but like we're going to do something that that's going to be absolutely epic. I think is also a great way to unify this group. Rob's going to say in the next episode that like the Matt vote ends up unifying the Ometepe tribe. And I think it is because it's like for the first time in this game, really, it's an opportunity for all of them to be on the same page, writing down the same name and working together. Well, at least the first time since they did it last time to Matt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, just to sum it up, if you haven't seen it in a while, Rob tells all the tribe what's going to happen Natalie just laughs. She's like, oh, shit, Matt. We're going to do it to Matt again. Ashley gets indignant. She's like, of course we're going to vote him out. He's too nice. He's doing the exact same thing he did the first time around. He's an idiot. And then Grant, who seems like a very nice person in general, Grant says, I don't know if I can vote Matt out. He's such a good Christian guy. And Rob says, well, you know what? He can still be a good Christian guy just over on Redemption, (laughs) which (laughs) that is such a badass line. I love that line. Anyway, yeah, to yada yada, just to make a long story short, uh, it's all going to go downhill, and Matt is not going to see it coming for a second. He has no idea the Ometepes. Even Andrea, even Andrea says, Matt's getting a little squirrely. I can't really trust him. He changes his mind too much. I don't want to ally with him anymore. Even she's going to vote for him, and it's all going to culminate in uh, tribal council where, yeah. (laughs) I want to get your thoughts on this. I want to hear from all of you. What were your memories of this at the time? Like, do you remember what your thoughts, feelings were, reactions to this episode? Um, I don't have like a distinct memory of like what I was eating and such at this time, but I um schnitzel. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I <laughs> I was definitely eating the schnitzel with the Dorito. Um, no, but it was like I think even the way that they they do the vote order like that and that it, it kind of was a little bit of a, um, a deflect there where it's this big question of who are they playing the idol on and 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 with Ralph playing his idol and stuff for Mike and like okay um, and then boom it comes out of you know that's going to be Steve and then does this this quick turn to Matt and it, I I remember it being a moment of like they really did it like they 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 were this brutal. Rob got got his way, and I just remember it being like a a wow moment. Those are my memories of it. Yeah, I mean, even the Zapateras are like, oh, this is kind of cool to a certain <laughs> extent, you know. Except for Julie, who just feels a little incensed at poor Matt's behalf. But they're all sitting there being like, this is a really damn good move. I mean, I would argue from a largeness perspective across Boston Rob's billion seasons on Survivor, this is perhaps his best and biggest move. See, I don't even think that's debatable. There, I don't think there's anything that's even close to this. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, you see, you give great examples of like other times of taking out the swing, right? Christy, Dolly, and Vanuatu is another example. But like on this level, I think is tough because not only do you have to 
convince Matt to vote for somebody else so it doesn't end up like a 6-6 tie. You then also have to like, okay, properly make sure that the idol is accounted for. And you have to get five other people on board as well, which is much more unruly than I think two or three people, especially it's such like a, a big initial vote as the merge. So like, it really was wild. I remember watching it in the moment thinking, yeah, like, Clearly, Matt's going to make a, a pretty big dent in this game. And no, it doesn't happen. And again, the sad thing about it is it's not like what's going to happen with Andrea later on, right? We're like, it's very simple. She comes back. She doesn't win. Revolving Door gets sent back out. Like, it is 100% foisted on Matt. Yes, he came in with a relatively good hand, but he makes some terrible bluffs. He puts in the wrong color chips. He accidentally flips over one of his cards and then as a result, they're able to bluff him out and have him miss out on a big pot. And it is really gutting to watch. I definitely remember in this moment being pretty astounded that they were able to actually pull this off as a merge vote, nonetheless. Survivor is, it's hard to totally, like by, by this point, I have seen so much Survivor. Very little like shocks me in some way. And, and not, Matt being voted out didn't necessarily shock me, but... I, I get I get very weirdly like there's a lot of times where the 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 show is clearly like okay this person's getting voted out uh, in this episode but then sometimes they like try to throw doubt by like oh well maybe it's this person but you're like you never if if you're looking and thinking you're never necessarily really going with the with the distraction or the faint I always thought you know and and I didn't you know necessarily think about it all the way through but I when they introduced this redemption island twist and said oh they'll go back in the game I was just always like they need to immediately vote that person back out like that person's done they're eliminated it's kind of like Jenna Lewis at the start of all stars right like you're a previous winner you're out you already won right so in my head the prevailing strategy always was vote the redemption island person out and so Matt coming back in the game to me like, it makes sense that they vote him immediately back out. But this whole episode was, like, they threw me off in a lot of ways. So I just remember being very, like, flummoxed after this episode was done. Like, first of all, I sort of bought that maybe Matt would lose the duel. Like, mm -hmm. I know it's Sarita, but with the foot injury, right? And then, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to stand and, you know, use your foot. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe he loses. And it's like, well, of course he didn't lose. Of course he won, you know, because it's Matt and he's won everything, right? And then he comes back in the game and I'm like, well, they're immediately going to vote him out. But then everyone's like wooing him and he's like got all these options. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe this is going to happen. And then not only does he get voted out, sort of like I thought it would happen. It didn't happen just in that calm, cold, well, we just vote an island person out. It was just Matt absolutely fucking himself over to like every degree. And so, like, by the end of the, 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 the episode, I was like, well, maybe Matt's got this. Maybe Matt's going to turn the... Oh, 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 no. Oh, God. Oh. Oh. Why did I ever think otherwise? <laughs> yeah, for me, I was going to say, obviously, it makes logical sense. Like Jay said, that's the game move. You vote this person right back out. But I will say personally, like, by the 22nd season of Survivor, it takes a lot to get an emotional reaction out of me. Like, I've seen Survivor. I know how it works. I know the big moments. I know I've seen people's dreams get crushed on national TV. I've, You know, you've seen everything. By season 22, 
At this point, this is only midway through Survivor history, but you look at it logically at the time, we're well into Survivor history. It's well past its prime. It's It's been going on forever. You know every beat. If you're a fan, you know every beat of Survivor. So it took a lot to get an emotional reaction out of me. Now, then you factor in this season and the whole storyline that Matt was absolutely blindsided by his tribe. And again, this is... Still in the era when blindsides are not fun and cool and amazing. We love blindsides. They're still fairly tragic. He got blindsided as hard as anybody has ever been blindsided. And then he turned all his storyline and all his faith into religion and God. And I have a special purpose. <laughs> not to quote Navin Johnson from The Jerk. I have a special purpose. But, but uh, he had a special purpose. God placed him here for a reason. There's a reason. God is going to make me go through tribunals. He's going to give me tests. I will survive them. It will make me a better person. It was such a deep, engrossing storyline, and you really felt bad for this kid. And again, I'm an atheist. I couldn't give two frog, frogs fat ass about religion, but it meant so much to Matt. It was such a big deal to see him come back in and just absolutely get murdered the second time in the exact same way, I might add, to the point that it completely shakes his faith in religion. Like, what was all that suffering for? And I know somebody pointed out earlier, the Bible is the story of God just making people suffer over and over again. So it's not really that out of character. But Matt believed so much that God had a special purpose for him to come back and do well and succeed and overcome his obstacles and win this game. Like, it almost was a gasp moment when this happened, when Matt got voted out so hard. And again, most people remember this as a Boston Rob moment, Boston Rob's most badass moment ever, his mob hit. And it is, all those things, all those are true. But at the time, most people would have seen it as a Matt moment, and they would have felt exactly like Julie was, Julie felt, which was, oh my God, that poor kid. So like I said, it was very hard to get an elicit an emotional reaction out of me or most hardcore Survivor fans by season 22. This is one of the rare moments that did it. This is one of those moments I felt such empathy for a player, you almost just wanted to give him a hug. And that's was very rare to find at this part in Survivor. I also feel like it's one of those rare episodes to have, like, a main character. And yes, you have people like Rob specifically, but also Andrea and Mike who also play roles. But, like, I don't know, not since the Roger Sexton episode have we had a merge episode in particular, such a pivotal moment in the game, like focused around one particular person. Yes, you have your Survivor Samoas, and this is arguably the Rob season to that point, but, like, it's very rare in Survivor storytelling that they say, okay, this one episode's gonna be about this this main character. And so, essentially, the story was, like, hey, we're bringing Jon Snow back to life, but then Jon Snow immediately gets killed by a dragon two seconds mm -hmm. later. Uh, and it was absolutely wild to think about that you think, okay, this is Matt's story, he's going to come back. And like you said, like, as epic as this is, I was maybe even more mystified by the fallout of it. I genuinely did feel for Matt when we get, like, the end of this episode and the beginning of the next episode when he just has to, like, come to terms. And I will say he is very good, I think, with reconciling it all, right? He pulls the James mm -hmm. of, like, I'm not very good at this game, I'm too naive, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't imagine how foundation-shaking that was. So also kind of like Sarita there, just a little bit. If it's like James, a little bit like Sarita, just <laughs> a little bit Sarita. I, oh, God is such a badass, such a badass. <laughs> but just this idea of like 
you have something that has been your guiding post, not only for your life, but during this incredibly trying time where you've felt incredibly isolating. You've gone through an experience that literally nobody else in Survivor history has gone through up to this point as well, right? Like, you can talk to the hundreds of alumni. Even the outcasts wouldn't be able to say they went through the same things that you did. And here you are. You feel like you have finally, you know, done your due diligence and you reach the proverbial gates of heaven and you were immediately turned back around and sent back to purgatory. And it, it, it had to have just been so absolutely gutting for him. I give him a, a huge amount of kudos for honestly, like, not quitting the game right there, right then. Yeah, and if you want just a little subtle sign of how fall, how far and how fast his beliefs fell, and I, I even hate to point this one out, like when the votes start coming in, the first vote comes up with his name, he laughs. He's like, ha ha. And then the second vote comes in, and it's not quite as funny. His face starts falling. And of course, this could be edited. It probably is a little bit, but he gets voted out. And this is the point I have to point out to people, is that this whole season, Matt has been God is great. I love God. God has a plan for me. I believe. I believe in my creator. My creator has special purpose in mind for me. Only God is good. What's the first thing Matt says after he gets voted out? What the hell, guys? That is not a sentence you would expect to come out of Matt. And that alone says so much about what he was feeling about that moment that, again, it's just heartbreaking. And that's why I will never, I can never understand the argument that this is the worst season of all time just because it has this moment. And this is such a talking point of a moment. Gosh, you know, it's funny. I, I planned on this podcast to keep going. We we're going to do episode nine. I don't really think we should. It feels like this is the end of the podcast. Does it feel like that to you guys too? Well, considering that the next little bit is just going to be mean, cleaning, cleaning out of the Zapateras, I think to Paul's point about how it was an awkward break last time, I think it makes sense if we start clean with just like the double boot episodes of Cleaning House with the Zapateras. That double boot episode, we're probably going to need full three hours on that because it was just <laughs> riveting television. So I think you're you're right, uh, Mario. Yeah, I am a storyteller at heart. This feels like this is the end of the story for this podcast. Okay, um, before we sign off and do our stuff, I just want to say there's one other thing here. We kind of neglected it in the episode, and and Jay has pointed it out before, the little subtle stuff that Rob does that's so, so good. And again, I don't want to make it feel like we're, you know, we're sucking him off or anything, like he's the greatest person ever. Admittedly, he's a fourth-timer playing against rookies. But yep. the, the little stuff that Rob does in this episode, like making sure his tribe sleeps under the tarp, the other tribe sleeps under the rain— making sure the two tribes talk shit about each other at all times. On paper, this is not a good move. It's not a strategic move. It's not winning you jury points. It's not winning you brownie points. But it's keeping the mindset that it's us against them. And once again, Rob is ensuring nobody on his tribe will ever blindside him, which is the big thing he's worried about. And it's so impressive when you watch it. Again, it doesn't feel like it's a good strategy on paper. It's not diplomatic. But Rob is operating on a little different level. He's trying to prevent that blind side because he knows that's what's going to get him if he doesn't keep it keep it in check. Right. This is by far like the most treacherous territory for him, right? Where there are so many other variables in the game that he can't control, namely the Zapatera people, that there stands a chance of a couple people jumping over and then he's gone. So, and David puts this in the, in the next episode uh, so so well that like, Rob essentially created an example out of Matt, right? Of you talk mm -hmm. out of line, this is what happens to you. And it's enough to really incentivize the other Omotepe people to just say, yeah, I'm good with where I'm at because if I go somewhere else, something tells me he's going to find out and then I'm good, as good as gone. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. There's, the, there's always a bigger picture with Rob. It's not just one move. It's what does this move represent to other people? And it's very clever. I just love that. All right. Is there anything we neglected to talk about in episodes five through eight here before we go through the baton death march of all the double boots in the next part? Wow, we covered everything. What a, just barely over three hours. Pretty good for us. I, I hope you guys listening are appreciative of the fact that this is the first podcast we've done in like a year and we somehow still managed to pull it off somewhat effortlessly. So uh, thank you guys for uh, listening and for your patience and for hanging in there with us. Yeah, you're the real MVP. Yeah, that's right. You guys, we don't do, we're nothing. You guys are the real MVPs. You guys are the Saritas of this podcast. Oh yeah, you're all, you're all uptown guys and girls. <laughs> yes. Uh, like you just said, you got like, are there multiple people listening to this? <laughs> Maybe they take turns. There might be a public library somewhere and someone leaves it up on their browser. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Okay, we promise to try to be back much faster and more promptly for the third part of Redemption Island, which will cover episodes nine through the end, Rob's crowning achievement where he literally carries his family on his back. It's an amazing moment. But until, until then, I think uh, we will sign off for now. Once again, my name is Sarita, and I am a mosquito. I'm Jay Fisher. <laughs> I'm Mike Plume. <laughs> I'm Paul Dorito Oslison. <laughs> and we will see you again on uh, German Survivor on the Schlitzerbahn tribe. I think that was the right word. Ever. Anyway, thank you for listening. We will talk to you guys later. See ya. Serena drops out of the duel. Matt seizes the moment and will re-enter this game. Matt, congratulations. Six duels. Six wins. You are back in this game with the next tribal council. Redemption Island starts again. Oh. That means, Matt, you could be voted out again and sent right back here. Guys, just please. <laughs> give me give me a minute. Okay, this is what I want. I want to take out the Ometepe tribe. Because I'm honestly at the bottom of the alliance. I was thinking like we vote Steve out, and then we vote Philip out. Ometepe thinks everything's hunky-dory, and then that's when we blindside Rob. I really feel I was put here for a reason, and that reason was, I believe, to honor my God. So I'm morally conflicted here because I really genuinely care about everyone on the former Ometepe tribe. Part of me wants to do the big survivor move. However, right now, I feel like my heart's almost telling me not to and just to stick with the Ometepe. I've grown so much through that Redemption Island experience. That is a time when I relied on God and, and I was tough. This absolutely is a game, but my heart's telling me don't change. I want to honor my God and be true to who I am. So I've decided I don't want to switch, I don't want to flip. And uh, I'm just going to have to have peace with whatever happens. I mean, if it's God's will, he'll take me as far as he wants me to go. Eighth person voted out of Survivor Redemption Island. Matt, you can bring me your torch. What the hell, guys? First and foremost, I'd like to congratulate myself on being the most naive person to ever play the game of Survivor. Stephanie is good. She is a linguist, you can tell.